I could not believe what I was seeing. I could have filled the back of his head with 556, which is an absolute joke. Well, it's not an ape, because if the Sasquatch was an ape, we would already have one. What are these elusive hominids that stalk the wilderness? Your host, two-time witness and field researcher for more than 40 years, William Jevning. Welcome to the mystery. Welcome to Creek Devil. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Creek Devil. We have James and Trista joining us today. Folks, how are you doing? Good, good. Tom, uh, my I... wife just went downstairs to okay. shut the door. <laughs> Tom, would you like to get the ball rolling on this? Absolutely. And first thing I want to say is I just want to thank everybody for another week, for another show. And um, if you if you like the content, please uh, click the like, share, and subscribe if you haven't done so already. And uh, we're going to kick this off. Uh, James, you've had some experience with these creatures i'm going to kind of leave it up to you but we'll go chronologically and um tell us start with the first one and give us all the details okay um i, I don't think i want to get into the specifics of the location um but let's just say it was northern california north coast um kind of in the mendocino humboldt county area and this would have been, yeah, and this would have been in 1988, I want to say. And I was at a, um, I was like 15 at the time. And um, I was at a survival camp for boys. And um, it was a two-week program. And at the end of the two weeks, you had to do a 24-hour solo um, on a stretch of river by yourself. Well, solo, obviously. <clears throat> And um, where they, they gave you like, uh, you got you got hiking boots, socks, shorts, a belt, three matches, um, a gallon tin can, t-shirt, and a hat, and a knife. And you were meant to be there for 24 plus hours by yourself. And uh, so when they dropped me off along the river there, uh, the first thing I did was build a shelter and then I started looking for food. And um, oh, built a shelter and built a fire and started looking for food. And um, kind of spent the day foraging and eat, found some berries to eat. Um, but really, I didn't eat that much, and that's what would turn out later. That was probably for the best. Um, anyhow, that night I went to bed in my shelter uh, with the fire right in front of it, and about I don't know exactly what time it was because obviously I didn't have a watch with me, but I want to say it was like possibly two to three or four in the morning. Um, I heard something like these two very loud kind of chuffing barks and that immediately woke me up. You know, the adrenaline surged right away when I heard that. And that was followed by something it sounded like 
a large branch being broken off of a tree and being thrown down the canyon towards me down in the river. I was, I was camped down by the river between some large boulders. And, uh, as that, and I could hear this log or branch or whatever it was coming down the, 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 the slope towards me. And as that was happening, uh, uh, this, this thing roared at me. And, um, I remember describing it at the time, the roar as having lasted for 30 seconds. Um, but I'm looking back at it now and I'm thinking it can't have possibly been that long, but that's what it felt like. It was so loud and it was so, um, unlike anything else I'd ever heard in my life. And I could feel it like in my rib cage and in my bones. And, um, and then that was it. I just heard kind of something running back up the slope and I was so scared that I couldn't move. And it was probably a good thing that I hadn't eaten anything that day. Uh, cause I would have shat myself <laughs> basically. <laughs> right. And, um, and yeah. And so I was, so, I was so scared that I couldn't even move to the other side of the fire to, uh, my wood pile. And so I started burning my shelter that I had built instead. And, um, I just, I, I had no idea what it was. And here's the thing. Me and the other campers and the counselors, we talked about it the next day. And we all knew about Bigfoot as you would if you were, you know, a kid in that time in Northern California. We knew about it, but we didn't put two and two together. Nobody ever said, oh, that was Bigfoot. So I went for years not knowing what it was. And it was only once I started reading, uh, you know, books and accounts on the internet that I finally recognized um, that, you know, I was like, well, that's obviously what it was. So that was my first encounter. Let me ask you this. Now, I'm just going to go clarification um, because we have people that are, you know, all over the world and they may not be real familiar with. So you were doing uh an eagle scout camping is that correct basically it it was it wasn't it was through the catholic church but it was basically uh, it was that that it was similar to that or outward bound or something like that yeah and it's your final kind of a um experience that you have to go through to reach a certain level is that kind of how right. it works or to go through the program and then then there was a graduate program the next year that you would go to Okay, and uh, while you're talking, Will and I were just kind of texting back and forth. I, I, we're not again. We're not going to talk about the area, but we know another guy who has had uh, a lot of activity in that in the area, not too far. And we'll talk a little bit after the show uh, sure. about that. But um, and I, I'm re- I'm going to let you get going here, continue on with your story. But I just want to say that. Those uh, chuff barks, I've heard those at about two in the morning, like a scream bark. And yeah, (laughs) Yeah, immediately, instantaneously, you're wide awake and it's unlike anything. It's, yeah, you know what it is and it's not like anything else out there. And and I understand uh, building a fire 
and just using your own shelter, you know, not wanting to go out. No way you're going to want to go out and get some wood. Right, right. So that was yeah. just a comment I wanted to make. And, and I'm, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, uh, no, carry on. Yeah, no, that was so that was it. And, um, you know, just kind of letting you know you're you're in real good company with, uh, you know, having these types of experiences. You're not uh, you're not the only one. So, right. I mean, I was kind of re reticent to come on in the first place because I didn't actually see anything. Um, but it was still very, very, uh, you know, dramatic experience. I, I mean, I. I my I the following year I, for a uh, high school English paper I wrote up an account of it which uh, my mom saved all the years for some reason I guess that's because that's what mothers do and I still have uh, it. That's what, oh, that's so good. Has, uh, well, let me put it to you this way: you know, your eyes may not have seen it, but your ears heard it and your brain heard yeah, it. Yeah, and I definitely felt it too in my ribs. And in my, you know, in my torso, it was, it was that loud and it was that close. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, um, and now how old were you at when you were a teenager? Uh, I, would been, I would have been 15, yeah. Okay, all right. And did you tell the camp counselors uh, what happened? We, we absolutely talked about it the next day and nobody had... I, I, Nobody had any idea what it was. And um, like I said, we all knew about Bigfoot because you had to if you were going to, you know, grow up in that area. And we all knew stories and we had been talking about it a few nights earlier, in fact, you know, telling campfire stories about, um, you know, Bigfoot encounters in the immediate, um, you know, Humboldt, Mendocino, Trinity County area. Right. And, uh, and but none of us put two and two together that that's what it was. And none of us could explain what it was. We knew there were mountain lions in the area. So we thought maybe it was something like that. But that didn't really make sense. And I, it never sat well with me. And then, um, you know, years later, reading uh, uh, other accounts, it like uh, everything fell into place perfectly. I mean, and it all just clicked, and I realized what it was. Yeah, absolutely. Well, putting putting the uh, you take all the information, you know, in, in its totality, and it, it paints a very clear picture of of what you ran into. And also worth saying that this is uh, in a very, very remote area. Um, I think they have since turned it into a wilderness area. But at that time, it was um, I mostly BLM land. Uh, some of it could have been national forests, too. But there was, you know, there were a, a few unimproved roads going back in there. And that was it. There was no trails. There was no nothing beyond that. So... Yeah, absolutely. And and I I will say I think Will is far more familiar with with that exact country with you know those roads and Right. Um he's talked about how it's it's so remote you can drive all day and not see anybody. For real. Yeah. I mean, that's really how it was. 
Excellent. All right. So, and what was your your uh, next encounter? Okay, so my next few encounters are far less dramatic, and it's just that I've heard uh, strange sounds um, up in Southwest Washington. I'm gonna suggest and not be 100% sure, but I'm gonna suggest that it's these were in uh, the area that Will used to have as his study area, um, kind of to the uh, southeast of uh, Mount St. Helens. And um, one of them was up near, uh, I don't know how specific I should be as far as location. Um, yeah, no, that's that's totally up to you. That's that's your call. What what you want to do? Yeah, so. kind of up near the Dark Divide area, at the top of like the uh, Wind River watershed. Oh yeah, lots of activity up, up there. there. Yeah, yeah, I was camped up there um, by myself. I used to go camping by myself a lot um, before I was married, and yeah, not allowed to now. But uh, um, and I was camped up there, and I I basically just heard whooping. I heard I heard it sounded like they were whooping to each other back and forth across the um, kind of the watershed area up there. And they moved away pretty, pretty quickly. And, um, it, it, you know, it woke me up again and I kind of did a state check because I was like, that is not, it's not anything else that I'd ever heard before. And, um, and the second time was much lower down, same watershed. Um, I want to say maybe five or 10 miles above uh, Hemlock, if you guys know where that is. And um, uh, my brother and I were out there um, camping again and in the rain this time. And we basically heard what sounded like, uh, it sounded like very deep guttural voices having a conversation, but you couldn't understand what exactly they were saying and it went on for a while and we both heard it and my brother didn't really have any knowledge of this subject and the next morning he said to me he said well i had an experience last night that i can't explain and then he told me what he heard and i was like well i definitely heard that too um so well that's yeah, no, no. I was just going to say, Will has Will, isn't it? You've heard some sort of chatter or something. You've heard these. I have not, but you have heard these things, mumbling or talking. Yeah, we in the past. We heard it up around Mount Rainier. Yeah, that's what it sounded like. It almost sounded like they were having a conversation, and I, I, because it was raining, it was really hard to judge the distance, but it didn't sound that far away. Yeah, I was going to say if it's raining and you can hear it, uh, stands a reason they <laughs> they're yeah. pretty close. Yep. So anyhow, those are my yeah. Stories. I think they were just discussing whether, you know, who gets the the leg chops and who gets the the arms and yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> who knows? Could have been. Yeah. So uh, now, did you grow up also in, in both California and Washington State? I grew up in Northern California. Uh, my wife grew up in Oregon, well, in Portland area. Um, but I've lived here for going on 20 years now. 
So in Portland. In Portland, yes. Okay. Wow. All right. Fantastic. Oh, and and uh, these two incidents in Washington were within the last ten years. Yeah. No, that's great. Um, and now, Trista, you don't let them go camping solo anymore. <laughs> well, you know, not these days. I'd rather us all go together. Um, but uh, we hope to get out there again and hopefully not during the busy times of year because we got a trailer a couple of years ago, but we just haven't had a chance to work on it with COVID and everything. Um, you know, got some other priorities happening. But yeah, hopefully we can get up there and stay in our camper and see if, uh, if we can't enjoy each other. We can enjoy the sounds of Sasquatch. Right? <laughs> I know, right? I know, but it's so fascinating. You know, it's just fascinating to think about. You know, it's nice to kind of at least have an open mind to it, you know, at this point in time. Um, obviously, I think with the Internet and just more research uh, available and, you know, knowledge and books and all the, you know, podcasts and YouTube videos and whatnot. I mean, we're just it's so much more in our face now that I think a lot more people are really noticing their own experiences. And that's basically kind of like how my situation when James was talking about, um, you know, later on in life when he's like, wait a minute, putting two and two together, it's kind of the same, very similar um, kind of thought process about explaining it all, you know. Um, Absolutely. And I want to hear yours. And I think James, do you have one more um episode or encounter that you had um i pretend no it's 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 no no it's one of these things where it's a um it's an edge case and i wouldn't i'm so unsure uncertain of it that that's not to well tell us fill us in and and who knows it might be interesting you know regardless uh, years ago, um, if I must have been like a teenager, um, well, definitely a teenager, must have been like 15 or 16, uh, me and a friend, me and a buddy, um, up at his parents' cabin in Mendocino County in California, Northern California, and I feel like we got kind of stalked and walked out of this place that we had, we had gone down, deep down into this canyon to, um, fish a stretch of river that we were pretty sure nobody would you know there would be a lot good fishing down there because it was so hard to get to so we went down there and um i feel like we kind of got i again i don't know it's an edge case um but well it, it let me ask like, you this what what happened that obviously it wasn't silent something happened what 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 occurred that made you think that you guys are being stalked or escorted or we could hear something we could hear something moving through the foliage and we both just got spooked and um i kind of unaccountably and i i don't know i mean but we could definitely hear something that was moving through the foliage with us okay so it's pacing you how yeah yeah pacing that's what i'm looking for okay how far away do you think it was when it's you know Five yards, it was, 10 not yards. That far. it was not that far away. I mean, you know, 20, 30 feet, something like that. Okay. 
this is really heavily, heavily, heavily uh, overgrown canyon. Um, so you're walking in or out of the area, and there's something where you're hearing what? Twigs cracking, walked, snaps? Yep, exactly, exactly. What sounded like footsteps. And it was spooky, you know? And um, I think the first thing that, that we thought about, which is at that time in that part of the world made sense. The first thing we thought about was, um, you know, crazy pot growers. And, uh, and, but if it was a human, they were, uh, you know, kind of preternaturally skilled at remaining hidden and yet still being able to pace us as we moved along the river. So I don't know, like I said, it's an edge case. Um, it could. It was well, weird. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Um, how long did this last? How far did this pacing go? We went down there, and we were gonna. We planned on spending a few hours down there, but we only probably were down there for about twenty minutes before we got spooked and left. Okay. And was the you got spooked because of the pacing, or was it just something yeah. else? Oh, it was the patient. We could hear something. We could hear something, and we couldn't see it. Okay. You know, and who knows? Could have been a could have been a cougar. You know, who knows? They're definitely well, that in was, that area. Yeah, I was going to ask. Um, generally speaking, you know, when you hear something that's pacing you, well, you and I encountered that just here a few weeks ago. Um, prey animals don't do that. They're they're leaving you, and cougars, right. and bobcats. Uh, bobcats. Every bobcat I've run into is gone. They're leaving. They see. Yeah, no, they're, they're gone. Uh, <clears throat> mountain lions. I've you know I've never seen one, but I've seen their 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 you know their their tracks and scat and stuff like that. But their whole thing is their survival depends on absolute stealth, silent stealth. Could have been, well, but also, um, who knows? They also typically don't, uh, you know, typically they go for solo individuals. Exactly. Know, not people who are impaired. So, it's, yeah, like I said, it's, uh, it could, you know, I don't, I don't have any answers for that one, but um, it was it was strange. Yeah, very, it sounds like it. All right. Um, so I understand Trista had some encounters, and we're, again, we're not going to give the exact location, but it was in Oregon. Is that right, Trista? Uh, yeah, it was uh, in southern Oregon, uh, off of the Umqua, or on the Umqua River, um, and uh, it was like 93, 94, maybe 95. Um, my boyfriend and I had would like to go camping up there. Um, and some hot springs down there that we would go to. And, and often we would go kind of leave at night to go camping, like after we got off work. Um, and so we had arrived at night and parked our car and started walking down to, um, the campsite. And we would have been like 19, well, 20, maybe 21 at the time. And as we're walking down the road, all of a sudden these two like characters come or these two people, couple, couple, these characters, I call them characters because they kind of like 
threw us off, um, come just running and bouncing around the corner from behind this rock. And they're just like running and don't go down there. Don't go down there. There's something down there. And my, my boyfriend and I just kind of look at each other like, okay, they must be totally high on drugs and like seeing stuff and, you know, like hallucinating. And so we just kind of like, oh, okay, we won't go down there. And they're like, no, seriously, there's something down there. And we're like, okay. So we started walking down there and um, kind of was like, gosh, well, should we go down there? I mean, this is like, they seemed really freaked out, you know, and we just kind of, you know, chalked it up to, oh, well, they probably were partying or, you know, doing some kind of, you know, hallucinogenics or who knows, just paranoid. Um, and so uh, we decided to go ahead and go down there. Um, and we ended up uh, finding their camp spot and uh, taking their their camp spot because they left their fire going and everything. Um, and uh, they we set up our, our tent and, you know, kind of scoped, scoped their fire. And I think we'd been there maybe about 10 minutes, 10 to 15 minutes. And um, I heard that we heard this, uh, this, like loud noise that sounded like that I, my rational brain, my logical brain was saying, Oh, that's just some big drunk apey guy pounding his chest down by the hot springs. Um, the sound that I heard was like this really deep, like just, I don't even know this, the words for it, but just this like, guttural you know like almost like yelping or yelling and the only thing that I could like associate it with was some big you know jock dude with all this muscle power yeah kind of guy and just that he was really messed up you know like partying again or something you know I guess I just had expected everybody that that was doing weird stuff down there were were high on drugs but anywho so um yeah, and so I was like, we were freaked out, and we just kind of like, oh, it's just probably some people down by the hot springs, and we were like, but but there's no other people, like we don't hear any other people, and um, we just hear this one sound that sounds like it's coming from this one person or entity. Um, so then we started hearing rustling around in the trees around us, and um. I just thought at that time, oh, why are they, it's the animals. Like it definitely sounded like animals that were living in the trees that were rustling around, um, which you don't really hear that kind of thing at, you know, 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night um, of animals rustling around uh, in the trees. So we're just like, okay, that's really strange. We really just kind of tried to make sense of it. And then a little while later, like not too much longer later, we heard um, the same sound, similar sound, only it sounded like it was coming from like further away. And I was like, that's weird. I was like, could it possibly be, maybe is that it, it maybe it's just his voice, the guy's voice echoing off the canyon. Um, and it was the same kind of, you know, yelping yell. And, um, you know, and again, just we did hear uh, some some kind of like branches, like it sounded like some branches breaking like in the trees. But I don't think I mean, I don't know, it's just so much wrestling going on. Maybe a broken branch fell from the tree when the animals were wrestling around. I don't know. But it was we were so terrified 
So we hopped right into that tent and we did not come out until the next morning. And um, again, we, we tried to make sense of it all, um, you know, just being kids basically at the time with, you know, not a lot of knowledge of, of being in the outdoors like that. You know, even though I'm, I'm from Oregon and he was from Northern California, we did have, you know, we were around the outdoors, but like my family was like never campers or anything like that. Um, and so, you know, we were pretty naive when it came to that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, and then that's, that's the story. The next morning, um, we ended up taking off with, um, a new boom box that was left by the, by the couple who took off and, you know, and then it wasn't until, um, I mean, we knew it was weird and I knew it was crazy. And then all these years, always remembering it so specifically. And then of course, you know, James and I have been together for I don't know, several, you know, 20, oh, 20, 20, 12 years, about 10, 12 years. And we've had these conversations and it's just become clear, like, oh, wait a minute. That's totally what I heard. Like we've heard, he's showed me some sounds or let me listen to some sounds. I'm like, oh my God. Yeah. That is totally the sound that I heard. Um, and it feels really nice to like kind of have an answer because, you know, in a way you just, I was nothing ever I had heard before. Um, but that was my rational mind trying to like pinpoint what it was. And some football player jock, you know, drunk and high on methamphetamine or something was down there pounding his chest going, you know, um, but, uh, but yeah, now I know that wasn't the case. So. And you said this thing is pounding its chest. Can you, you so you can hear that, right? Yeah. Now let me just say, I'm not sure if, this thing was pounding its chest it's just the noise was so guttural and so like powerful and so like over the top like energy wise that my 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 interpretation of it was just pure aggression and so um or you know aggression with a sound the sound of aggression the sound of of like a yelling or a yelping or, a, and so I really don't know if he was pounding his chest, but that was, I heard, I was the, the, the sound of that, the met, the visual in my mind went to this, the thing that I could make sense of was, Oh, it's just some big football player guy who's been drinking, you know, I mean, and he's down there and he's thinking he's like man of the world. You know, that was kind of like what I, but then once we started hearing it again and I could hear that coming further down the canyon, it made literally no sense. And then James started talking about the communication. And I was like, well, maybe that's what it was. Maybe it was two separate, uh, you know, Sasquatch talking to each other, yelling at each other, or maybe it was the same one. And he was just able to make it down the, the river further than, you know, we could even imagine, you know? You know, it's interesting. So many people think, oh, my gosh, I saw that Bigfoot or or I heard him. And it was, you know, they talk about how did it get over to this other location so quickly? And I wasn't aware of it. I didn't hear it. And all of a sudden it's over here. Um, and actually, it is that they, they do travel in groups. And, you know, Will, we had Gerald on. Uh, he couldn't believe how, you know, that they had surrounded him. He thought it was just the same one, I believe. 
And we've there's countless stories well, where people think, when, how did it get over there? When I first talked to Lee that we had on uh, sometime back, that was his first, biggest question was, you know, the time frame didn't work for him. He said, well, I was just about face-to-face with this thing, and then it, it backed away, and then just moments later it was, you know, way up the road. And he says, how can that happen? And I said, because there was more than one there. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like somebody slapped him. Yeah, and, and by the way, uh, James, that was real near to your area. We'll talk more about that when we get off, uh, when we're done recording. But yeah, that definitely a uh, hot spot. Interesting. So, Trista, you guys, you, you hear this thing and, and you're you know, you're kind of huddled in your tent for the whole night. How mm-hmm. long, how did this go on till, you know, quite a while or, you know, how long did this last? Um, I only heard it once or twice at the original spot that we heard it when we first heard it, which really didn't sound, I mean, I'm not good with like time and space, like how far something was, especially in the pitch black dark of night. Um, and I don't, I don't really have a very good visual of, of the campsite in reference to the river or the hot springs because I've never really been there during the day. Um, so, uh, yeah. So, um, and when I did go there once during the day, it was like, there was like six feet of snow. So that, yeah, that I can't say, but it, <laughs> it sounded like it was right down there. And, um, and then, you know, and then I think we heard it again and then the animals were wrestling around near our tent and then we heard it down from the other side. And then that's when we went in and we just heard more wrestling around and, you know, we tried to make sense of it, you know, with maybe it being a wildcat of some kind and, um, and, you know, but, you know, we were just too, and we knew about Bigfoot, but I mean, it was like the nineties, you know, we, when we were college students, we weren't. We weren't really, you know, in tune. It wasn't on your radar. It wasn't on my radar. That's right. It wasn't on my radar. So I just kind of made sense of it all um, by thinking that it was, you know, potentially human. But then the fact that an ape came to my mind when I heard it, it's like it wasn't human. It definitely was an ape. It had to have been. And there were no other cars parked at the trailhead. No, there was nobody at the trailhead. And that was... and. And there was nobody at the hospital. We didn't hear any, because you could hear voices really if you could, and that's from it, if people were getting rowdy. And so that's why we thought, well, maybe it was, but there wasn't any other noises coming from down there. It was just that. Um, and, and perhaps he wasn't even at the hot springs, but just in a different, lo- you know, maybe, I don't know where he was, but it was very close. And then further, it was like, when we heard it again, um, you know, it was, you know, further down the canyon. Now, I'd say in terms of the time period from the time we got there until probably maybe the time we went to sleep, I would say maybe one, one, an hour, an hour and a half um, of probably, you know, some, some noises and maybe some of that was spaced out a little bit too. You know, it's hard to say it was a long time ago, but. Um, I got to tell you. I really like the part of the story where some people are just absolutely freaked out. <laughs> oh my yeah, god! That was always super telling to me. Yeah, oh. that was the other thing because once we got down there and we started going, oh my god, we got to get in this tent and we cannot get out. And we were like, 
we were like looking at each other like, no wonder they were afraid. Something is down here, you know? And we just, yeah. So You, you wonder if they saw something. Yeah, exactly. I don't know. Maybe they did. But, I mean, I had never seen anybody so frightened in my life. I mean, they were just wide-eyed and running. And they left all their stuff. They had nothing with them. They left all their stuff. They were they didn't have like a bunch of camping gear or anything like that. They were just, you know, a couple of kids probably our age, you know, early 20s and, you know, just out hanging out and they had a boombox down there in a fire and, you know, maybe maybe a blanket or a sleeping bag. I don't really remember what else was down there except for, you know, but I remember Kevin Kevin my boyfriend, he set up the tent and we we um and we, you know, we're in there like within five, 10, 20 minutes of getting there. It was like, oh, we're done for the night. <laughs> so, but yeah, it was, it was really something. And, um, you know, actually I called him. I, I, you know, I don't talk to him. We're Facebook friends, but I, I gave him a call a few weeks ago and I said, hey, I need to talk to you. I need to see if I'm going crazy. You know, did this, did I, did this happen? So I go, oh, I remember that. Yes, it did happen. Don't worry. You're not going crazy. Um, cause you know, you, sometimes you want to, you just forget about these things and, you know, but we don't forget no, it, about it, them, but you want to well, make I sure that say, it's so, sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. It's, it's good to get no, that no. corroborating information. You, you got to go to somebody who was there and say, Hey, listen, is this what happened? Do, is this the way you remember it? And right. My question is, those people that left, it sounds like they were, like, maybe on the verge of hysterics. Uh, yeah. Yeah. They were just totally free. Yeah. I mean, and at that time, you know, we were in college. It was the early 90s. There was a lot of, and I was in, you know, we lived in Southern Oregon, and there was a lot of uh, psychedelic mushrooms and things like that that people were doing. I mean, you know, and so it wouldn't have been unusual to, like, see somebody and, out camping in the middle of the night and if I guess if they had that kind of look on their face well they must not be you know they must not be sober they must be on something that's causing them to have this you know absolute that's you assume, yeah that's what I assume and then you got down there and you were like oh yeah that, I was like oh wait a minute those people were probably just innocent people like we are you know I mean they're not you well, know it's just yeah so. Thank goodness here in Oregon, nobody does that stuff anymore. So, well, I know, I know. Well, I mean, you know, that, that that's one of the reasons I get a little bit nervous about having him go out camping by himself. And, you know, just in case there's some crazies out there. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, have you, and now this was, I didn't know if you had had another encounter or because this nope, is pretty sufficient. Yeah, this is the only encounter I've had. Um, you know, I'm not I, I haven't I was never like a big camper growing up when I was in college. I camped several times with my friends because, of course, so many beautiful areas down there. Um, and and then it wasn't until what we got you know, what, 12 years ago when I met James and we started, um, you know, you started hanging out. Camping. Yeah. I started camping again with him. <laughs> and so, you know, I haven't had any other experiences aside from that one. I, maybe if I went out more, I might. So, 
you know, but yeah, it was really cool. It was a really cool experience. I mean, I love, I love the fact that I experienced that, but I'm just kind of that kind of person that likes that kind of wild stuff. You know, I mean, yeah, I would, I'm sure if I really saw one in real life, I would be absolutely terrified myself. I know I was terrified that night, but not terrified enough to get out of that tent and walk back up that trail. Right, right. I think that was probably a smart thing to do. Um, <clears throat> you know, if they're going to get a snack, you're going to make them work for it. So, right. <laughs> um, well, listen, guys, I really appreciate you. You know, James, you and I uh, contacted by email. And folks, I just want to say that really is a great way to get a hold of us. It's uh, questions, plural, questions at creekdevil.com uh, for for questions, obviously, and also if you've had an encounter that you want to share. And some people share their encounters. They don't come on the air, and most do. But if you don't want to, but you just want to talk to us, you can do that as well. So uh, James and Trista, stick around. Stay on the air. Uh, We're going to wrap this up here pretty quick and uh, go from there. So thank you so much. Great stories. By the way, I... Very familiar. I'm going to ask you, I think I know the hot springs and I think I know the area and I'll whittle her off the air and we'll talk about that a little bit. Sounds good. Thank you so much. This was fun. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Thank, yeah, thank both of you. Yeah, thank you very much. In Bigfoot history, Morristown, British Columbia, 1961. A couple who then lived four miles south of Morristown told Bob Pitmus that they watched from their breakfast table an eight-foot, black, hair-covered creature, very heavy, with a flat face, walk direct across the field across the highway. Later, they found 300 yards of five-toed tracks, 16 inches long, with flat feet sinking four to five inches deep in the field. The depth compared to human prints they termed awe-inspiring. Welcome back from the break, everyone. We have Milo and Forrest joining us today. Um, I have a question I want to bring up first thing. Since we were talking with uh, James and Trista in the first segment, they mentioned hearing sounds that sounded like chest beating. And it's not the first time I've heard this from witnesses. It's I've heard it several other cases. Not a lot, but on a few different ones. And we actually have a recording of it from a gentleman in Alaska so, I don't know, you know, Forrest, what are your thoughts on, you know, primates? I mean, we know gorillas do it, but the chest beating, what do you think that signifies? Well, male chimpanzees and male gorillas both do it. And um, the alpha males do it because there's, uh, I think, establishing their authority, <clears throat> excuse me, asserting their authority and establishing that. Um, oftentimes you'll see um, sub-adult gorillas uh, that will do it and come up uh, to their <laughs> alpha fathers and do it in front of them. And they could get backhanded or uh, by Papa for doing such as that. But uh, 
um, and and in situations like that, it's more, uh, you know, play acting, just like a kid would copy his dad. But uh, um, they do it to establish their hierarchy and the and ranking in their uh, troops. And chimpanzees do it as well as the uh, gorillas do. So I guess with the Sasquatch being a primate, it wouldn't be out of character for them to do a similar kind of behavior. No, I don't think it's out of character at all. I, uh, of course, uh, <clears throat> I think we've uh, discussed this before. I think in a lot of ways, uh, uh, Bigfoot's an enigma. He has a combination of um, different traits um, that have been passed on to him. Oh, when I say him as a uh, all-inclusive of the, the group of things like uh, Capuchin uh, Lucidum that the um, you know lower primates have, you know, your for simians and such as that, with the eye glow all the way up to the uh, uh, mid-torsal break in the foot, which is uh, uh, what you see in your higher apes such as gorillas and um your chimpanzees and plus they have the but they have the inline toe like what we have so i i kind of think they're an enigma they're a combination of so many different things that has been established in their uh genetic pattern that has worked for them and uh, um and i think they've remained in that um and not progressed so to speak like humans have you know, something really interesting I discovered back in the 80s, um, you know, I've talked about the group in southwest Washington that I sort of traced around, you know, for about 12 years, and I figured out their movement patterns. And I read, I was given the book Gorillas of the Mist, uh, you know, I can't remember what year, 87, I think. And I read it, and it was fascinating about how gorillas move throughout their ranges, the size of the range, how they moved around th throughout the ranges, and how they would have you know their different feeding routes, and that they would alter them slightly from you know time to time, uh, apparently to avoid predators, but it also it also served to not uh, deplete a certain area of food. And what I found with the Sasquatches in this one particular group, and I think it holds you know it's a it's a consistent pattern the ranges and their movements are a little bit different from area to area of course depending on you know the lay of the land but um the behavior was the same only on a much larger scale so there were there were some very similar behaviors to gorillas but also with chimps well i think you're very correct in that assumption uh and Primates are, uh, of course, intelligent, and they're going to uh, discern where food is going to be, uh, you know, like fruit and such as that's going to, nuts, uh, is going to be ripening in a certain area, so they're therefore going to move into that, and uh, <clears throat> they're going to uh, certainly move around, just like you said, uh, because they don't want to deplete their resources and uh, it wouldn't serve to deplete their resources in a certain area <clears throat> and I'm sorry you'll have to excuse me I got a little bit of a frog in my throat here um, so it's not going to serve anybody a purpose and you see this in your uh, ancient hunter-gatherers in uh, human 
societies. They did the same thing. They moved from area to area to area. When grains could be found in one area, they would move into that area and uh, follow the herds of uh, uh, whatever they happened to be hunting in their area. And uh, whether that was in Africa and Northern Europe or even over here in America, they followed the, the game animals. And uh, But they also uh, utilized uh, grains. And, uh, uh, and of course, you're going to have your grains and your fruits and such as that only occurring at uh, certain times and uh, areas. So they're going to be there when that's ripening, and then they're going to move on. So the same thing with, you know, primates. I mean, we, we're all primates. We're the naked ape. We all think alike. Yeah, I think another element of that, too, besides what's available at certain time periods, is that uh, with, you know, prey animals, you know, typically a Sasquatch is in an area about 14 days, then they move on. Um, and the prey animals would become aware of their presence, I would think, at, at, after a certain amount of time, and then they would scatter. So that might be a problem. So you might need to move on to the next group. Sure. And I think you hear that a lot of times when you've got, uh, you've had your uh, deer hunters on, you'll hear them say that all of a sudden there's no animals in an area. Exactly. When they go in to go hunting, there's no animals. I mean, the animals have gone. And uh, so something is pressuring those prey animals, uh, whether it be deer, elk, or moose, or whatever, to, to move, to uh, exit the area. So, uh, you know, whether, and that's the same thing with here. When uh, deer hunting comes, I don't hunt deer. <laughs> so they all come to my property. <laughs> <laughs> and I've got, I've got relatives that are, you've got so many deer, can we just, and I'm like, no, <laughs> you can't come hunt my deer. But they all move into my area. And, you know, prey animals have a, a, a level of intelligence as well. And it's instinctual to to go away from the predators, and uh, we all know that uh, Bigfoot qualifies predators. You know, absolutely. And, uh, <laughs> you know, the town of Ashford, just outside of Mount Rainier, my buddies and I, we camped up there for years, and it was always the joke among us. You know, right about a day or two before hunting season, and all the pastures, the natural pastures around the town you'd start seeing that's where the herds of elk would hang out <laughs> right near the town because nobody can hunt there. You could drive by and, you know, the hunters would drool over the, all the animals out there, but you know, that's where they come to, uh, to be safe. Oh, you'll find, you'll find them right up in people's uh, front yards and backyards here in Texas. <laughs> oh, I believe it. I believe it. Yeah. Well, yeah, Tom, I'm going to jump in real quick. Go ahead, Tom. I just wanted to comment on that. The, uh, the the very first encounter, Bigfoot encounter I had was in December, back in 2017. And driving up to the area, uh, my friend and I commented, we're like, look at that. Right up by the farmer's barn were, we counted, oh gosh, 60 or 70 elk out in the pasture just hanging. We're like, well, what are they doing there? They're just... Well, I think that's what it was. I think they knew what was up at the higher elevation in wintertime, and they just came down. I must have been an area. They, it was very wide open, so you couldn't sneak up on them uh, without being seen. So I had a um, um, week. They do a lot of uh, atlas deer up here in uh, Texas on the game ranches, and I actually have a game ranch down the road from me. And somehow this, a little atlas doe had gotten out and um 
I was feeding her and my neighbor uh, down the road was feeding her too. And she, when the weather would get bad, she literally would come in the barn and uh, I would, there were many times that I walked up there and she would be sleeping on my stacks of alfalfa hay. She'd climb up there and sleep on top of the hay. Smart animal. Yep. <laughs> she knew nobody was going to bother her in there. <laughs> you know, it's interesting too with these creatures, and we've talked about this before, where I've interviewed people and you hear other stories where, you know, somebody would be out and they, they were about to encounter a Sasquatch and a deer would pop up and run over near the person. I interviewed a guy back in 1988 who, <clears throat> they heard these screams, really loud screams coming up this ridge towards them. Uh, the one guy ran to the car, the other one stayed, and uh, he thought it was a bear. You know, he wasn't that knowledgeable about the area, but... Uh, pretty soon a deer pops out of the tree line from where the screams were coming from and it ran right over by him and acted like he wasn't even there and it was terrified and he said i could have reached out and touched it and then there was one final scream and the deer bolted and then this creature emerged out of the tree line saw the guy standing there and, and then made a dead run for him uh, obviously a mock charge because it stopped about 10 feet in front of him and they just stood there and stared at each other for a few moments and then the creature turned and walked off into the forest but uh you know, that's uh, that's another one of these situations where it's interesting to me where, you know, they know humans are predatory, the deer do, and but they'll run to the human almost like they're going there for protection. Well, I think we represent the lesser of two evils. Yeah, without a doubt. Well, and, oh, go ahead, I'm sorry. Uh, no, I was just, uh, when you, you said the mock charge, I, I was going to make the comment, I he probably and that had to be a scary proposition totally scary proposition but that was probably the wisest thing he could have done was to stand his ground and not turn and run yeah i think and i've talked to people you know again you know that have had similar experiences and and like this gentleman said i i don't know why i didn't run my body just didn't move so i'm kind of wondering if maybe you know the the part of the flight or flight mechanism in our brains kicks in and and it's sort of a safety mechanism in those cases where we don't run and it's the right choice well chimpanzees and again you go back to chimpanzees and gorillas and even your macaques uh, uh you you can people can go out there on uh youtube and see a lot of videos because uh, there's a lot of videographers over there in those asian countries that make a lot of money off of uh, the youtube views but uh uh, the the males will do the same thing. Well, actually, females will too. They mock, they make mock charges all the time. But most generally, as far as humans are concerned, they will, they will stop. And even oftentimes when they're engaging with other males in the group, they will make mock charges towards towards each other because the simple fact is, you don't really want to engage each other because I don't know. You've seen the canines on all of them, even the gorillas. Oh yeah. Uh, I wouldn't want that thing chomping into me. Uh, well, I know no. what it is like to have a, a smaller uh, chimpanzee chomping into me, so I remember that. But I'm talking about a great big, you know, <clears throat> uh, six or seven hundred pound gorilla, or even uh, a chimpanzee that weighs in at two fifty or or more. Uh, you're dead, and but they don't want to engage each other as well because what what's the use of doing damage to yourself i mean even an alpha male if he engages in a a, a battle uh 
sometimes they do, but very that's not often. And it's much easier to have a mock charge and, uh, you know, blow yourself up, make your hair stand on end just like a cat, and uh, look big and ferocious, and that would be intimidating enough to get your uh, opponent to to walk away without a, you know, a fight. Because damaging yourself is not going to help you. And it can, so, and the nature mean, it's, not can, like they, it's not like they can run down to the local uh, ER and, and get taken care of. Right. In nature, that can be a death sentence, having an injury. Exactly. <clears throat> exactly. You know, it's interesting, those behaviors, too. Uh, it made me think of Troy. We had this guy on some time ago. Very interesting account. Him and two buddies uh, were going to go fishing. And they heard one of these things screaming bloody murder coming racing down this uh, hill at him. And it was apparently a juvenile because it wasn't real big. It was maybe, I don't remember, Tom, do you call five or six feet high? But it, it, it's, it was in between these three guys and just through this absolute tantrum. And, and, he, and he talked about it. You know, they, they could see its teeth very clearly. It had, it had the canines. Um, it had a couple teeth missing, things like that. But just through this awful fit, this big display, trying to make itself look bigger and noisier. And, and I think if I were one of them three guys, I probably would have soiled myself at the moment. But, um, <laughs> you know, and then, of course, they left. They, they left their fishing gear and everything. They just took off. But, uh, yeah, it's all, it fits very clearly in with all the other comparative behaviors. Well, I could only recall, uh, I know Armand Sarmiento, um, who studied gorillas, uh, he, I can only recall on, in one instance where he ever said that he, he was actually charged by a sub-adult, uh, male gorilla and all it did was just rolling just hit him below the knee and just rolled him. Uh, so I don't think gorillas less than much less than chimpanzees tend to, uh, you know, use their teeth and biting and such. And, and most of your gorillas and chimpanzees too, uh, when they're fighting, they use the back side of their hand. They don't, they don't punch like what we do. They use the back side of their hands, uh, to, uh, to hit with and that's fascinating too because that's another thing the sasquatch does um you know we know about the the film legend of boggy creek right and our our friend tw the police officer he actually met the guy who was mauled during that during one of those um scenes in the film where the three guys go out yeah right and he, and mm-hmm. and so he apparently the attack was much worse than what they portrayed it to be in the film. The guy was the guy was grabbed by this thing and then it beat the heck out of him with the back of its hands, which is exactly mm-hmm. like what you were just describing. Mm-hmm. And it's not the only case I've heard that. I've heard it in other cases as well where somebody actually had physical contact like that and they were using the back of their hands to do this with. Mm-hmm. I've I've heard that as well. Uh, a quick question: Is that is that an intentional thing? Because if you use the palm of your hands and you injure them, now you're going to have a hard time picking things up. You know, you, it's 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 safer to use the back of your hands. And I'm just curious if you had any thoughts on that. Well. I don't know. You know, I've never really given that much thought. But you know, a gorilla and a chimpanzee. Uh, they they have opposable thumbs just like we do, but they also have a slightly different. Um, the end of their uh, the two 
lateral ends of their uh, uh, carpals in there have a tendency to curve into their hands. So they're, both hands are used for not only um, eating with, but they also they do a lot of climbing. And I, that's why I used to get really aggravated at watching uh, Finding Google. Uh, well, excuse me. Let me rephrase that. Not Finding Google. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I would get so I'd be sitting here screaming at the TV. Look in the trees. Look in the trees. <laughs> you, you know, here's a thought on on that using the hands. You know, I, I was just thinking about it. You know, really. I mean, we do a lot of things with the palms of our hands, but it's kind of awkward if you were going to take a swing at something. The back, the back of your hand actually has knuckles. So if you want to damage something, you're going to use the knuckles on them, right? Exactly. So an yeah. open hand, open-handed hitting is a little more awkward. Plus, it's not, it's not as effective, and you can do it faster with the back of your hands. Yeah, and you do, and uh, of course, humans immediately ball their fists up and uh, strike with that that uh, knuckle area. I think we've learned uh, that that actually produces far more. Effectual hitting, but evidently gorillas, uh, Bigfoot, and chimpanzees have not. But you know what? What they're doing has been pretty effective for them. So I guess we can't. <laughs> I kind of wonder you know. if using a balled-up fist isn't something we learned, you know, probably thousands of years ago as a more effective way of doing it, and that's why we do it as opposed to other primates. Well, I, I think you're exactly correct. I mean, we have progressed, and I think a lot of these. Um, I mean, of course, who's to say what they're going to be like a million years from now? But uh, uh, I think a lot of these apes, um, orangutans, your uh, chimpanzees, your gorillas, Bigfoot, and I consider them to be a, a primate and an ape. And some people totally disagree with that. And, that you know, everybody has a right to their opinion. Um, but I think that that's learned to be, uh, they have learned that that's an effective way for them to accomplish what they need to accomplish yeah i would say they don't need to do anymore so that's what works and that's what they stick with yeah yeah exactly well <laughs> milo tom what do you got in the way of questions i guess we can go that route unless you guys want uh, something else to bring up well i do have a question i've got uh, charles uh, wanted to know has anybody ever used a taser on a bigfoot Ah, uh, there is a story. <laughs> it wasn't a taser, but kind of. I the, want to hear this. Kind of the same thing. Well, you know the story, um, and of course, you might get a kick out of this one too. T.W. told us he has a friend uh, in Texas who uh, is an Apache, and there was a group of these guys, and I can't remember. They were going. They were going to help a rancher with some sick cattle. This gentleman was. And uh, had the cattle, and I don't remember how many had three, four, five, whatever it was in this barn. And he decided he was going to sleep up in the loft that night to kind of keep keep an eye on the animals. And <clears throat> somewhere in the middle of the night, he thought one of his buddies was going to come up there. He heard this noise coming up this up on the ladder, and thought one of his buddies was going to play a prank on him. So he grabs a cattle prod that was nearby, and he zaps what he thinks is one of his buddies pulling a prank and it was one of these creatures <laughs> and the thing falls down and just goes into a freaking rage right tried to get him he jumps out the window and runs like heck right when they went back uh, the creature in its rage had killed the cattle that were in the barn the sick animals and left 
But uh, that's that's the only story I know of where one's been zapped. <laughs> so is there a moral one. to this story? <laughs> yeah, be careful about the pranks you're going to pull. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've been zapped with one of those before. <laughs> My husband thought he'd be cute one time and did that, and it, you know, they hurt. <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine it'd be any fun. <laughs> So I hope that answered that question. I don't think I'd want to try to pull a taser on. Well, first of all, you know, from having seen one at a pretty close distance, the hair is really thick. I don't think a taser would penetrate that, to be honest. You know, the little darts that go out. Well, I got a question then. Yeah. How about how about uh, cattle fences where they use all that uh, electricity on on on. Uh, like range fences or whatever. What, what, just electric wire? Yeah. They probably just avoid. Don't they... I mean, they step over fences, so, you know, they probably don't go near. I mean, who knows? They may have been zapped, probably not happy about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, I mean, the first time I ever did it, it was somebody said, hey, go over here. Go, you know, I had to go do a number one somewhere. Matter of fact, it was there in Enumclaw at my aunt's and uncle's house. And they go, hey, go over here. And they go, <laughs> He's a city boy, you know. <laughs> I'm surprised it wasn't at our house because <laughs> we had electric fences. Yeah. That was funny. You well, know. Can I interject something, guys? Yeah. You know, I'm a rancher, so we use a lot of electric fences. Um, I will tell you the same thing with uh, horses and cattle about the that what is gonna, where it's going to be effective on them is on like with uh, horses and cattle that it's going to be the the bare areas like the nose. And so on a Bigfoot, it'd have to be the hand uh, would have to reach down because I don't think it kind of goes back to the taser uh, uh, deal. Uh, with the hair cover, it's, they're not going to feel it unless they actually touch it with their, their the a bare area yeah, on that's, their hands and that's a good feet point. or something like that. That's a good point. Mm -hmm. Like okay. I said, from what I saw, the hair is really thick, so uh, that would be a pretty good insulator. So, yeah. Unless their hair is wet. <laughs> but that's a whole different conversation. <laughs> Y'all are in a cruel mood this morning. <laughs> All right. Tom, any more? Uh, I guess we probably got a few questions, I'm sure. Yeah, we got uh, Janae wants to know. She's got three questions. Um, question number one, are there any reports of anyone on the show that has seen a Yeti? Uh, and I think that's a it's a good question we because haven't, we haven't we're still trying to find people from that part of the world. Yeah, and you get your your Englishman friend over there. Yeah, he's not a witness. Yeah, he's not a witness, but he is a source of information. Right, right. And didn't he talk about the special forces over there? They avoid those things like the plague. You know, yeah, he did, and it's interesting. Well, not so much the special forces, but the. Uh, they won't. They just won't go in an area when when they know a yeti's in an area. They won't go there. He said what they do is they they're the ones that sort of take on the um, uh, protection of the tiger population. The tiger population he said is making a really huge comeback fast because uh, Indian special forces, if they think somebody's poaching, they just kill them. And I actually met somebody from India just a couple of days ago, and his father was in the Indian Air Force, and so we got talking about 
you know, the military, and, and I related that to him. I said, hey, you know, I, I've heard the Indian Special Forces are very good. And he says, oh, yeah, they're really, really tough soldiers, really know their stuff. So he sort of confirmed that. We didn't go into the Yeti conversation, but um, he just confirmed how, how these guys are. And uh, when they know a Yeti's in the area, they won't go there. Oh, interesting. And and I guess we're the idiots that do just the opposite. So. Well, you know, we're kind of lined up to be ham sandwiches, so. Right. <laughs> it's sort of been our nature. <laughs> just bring a piece okay. of bread. You're good to go. <laughs> right. Right. Burrito myself. You want to be the burrito? <laughs> no, I don't. Oh, okay. I, I said that the way i look at it i thought maybe we were volunteering i didn't know my sorry man. no we, we already had that discussion already dude i am not the slow guy i i no okay what's your i'm gonna flap my arms and fly what, what's your second question all right question number two is are there any reports of bigfoot hiding or living in abandoned houses or old buildings as opposed to um you know building some sort of a you know, structure of their own. Well, they don't seem to need have a need for any kind of protection from the weather. They seem to like bad weather, which is probably a carryover from, you know, surviving well through the ice ages. Um, in fact, in the wintertime, they, they seem to go up higher in elevation, up where it's really cold. So, but I have heard a few stories of them, you know, being around, in and around abandoned buildings. I, I don't see... Uh, I haven't heard of anything, you know, any proof that there was any kind of dwelling or anything like that. But they seem to, we'll go around and check them out and maybe be seen there. And maybe that's the association that they were using it because they were seen next to one. Well, and two things come to mind on that. Um, one of them is, wasn't there a situation in the Yakult um where they were like hanging around an old barn or something? No, no. the 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 family, the Goldhammer family, had a barn. They had the house, they had a barn, and and I think that was the only. There was a small shed next to the house, but there wasn't any other outbuildings, just the barn. And that's where the the horse grain and stuff was. And their garden was out by the barn. So the creature that's that's the avenue of approach that they would make sometimes up from that lower field up by the barn. But that Daniel, okay, I. As far as I know, they were never seen at or in the barn. Okay. And then those tracks, you followed the tracks to, there's a toppled, there's a uh, cottonwood that was knocked over. I Maybe I just got two stories mixed up. I was under the impression that when you went beyond that cottonwood, there was an old shed or something. Oh, no, that no. You... <clears throat> okay. The, we went from the barn. That's where, that's where Nick first encountered the creature, was down past the barn along the wood line. There was a wood line. Stand of trees on the left and on the right was an open pasture. They had 13 acres. It was mostly open area with some small trees. Um, so we followed the tree line all the way down towards the back of their property. And and if you know, it was, it's kind of a rectangular shape. In fact, where I grew up, it was kind of a similar uh, layout. So we walked all the way back. And I don't know how in distance wise, how far that is, but it was a few hundred yards back there away from the barn and it was a down cottonwood and under the base of that was a, a intermittent pond. It was dried up at that time. And in the dirt, <clears throat> I found, excuse me, two sets of juvenile tracks. Okay. Gotcha. And then out of everybody on today's call, has anybody 
ever had an experience where one of these things went into an occupied building? <laughs> Forest. <laughs> oh, we've actually heard that a few so, times now. Carol talked about that with her home. Yeah, the creature was in there. Forest, of course, and uh, T.W. told us about his friend John. And Brenda. And Brenda, and, right? Uh, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there there have been a few occasions, and even in the movie The Legend of Augie Creek, where that incident we were talking about with the, it was the Fords, um, the creature reached through the window. Now, that's not being in the, uh, the building, but it tried the door. Yeah. Which is... And it's not uncommon. I've heard of that happening other times. So there you go, folks. If you live in an area where these things are, maybe jam a, uh, a chair in the door before you go to bed. Well, at least um, lock your doors saying. at night. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. At least lock your doors. <laughs> but, you know, truthfully speaking, if they want to go through those doors, they'll... <laughs> yeah. Right, what do I know? Oh, yeah. they, can, they, can, they can go ahead and just pop those doors and walk right on in. And, and there are a couple... And of, I, I, I bear the score on my forehead. <laughs> and there are a couple of stories even, like, um, you know, I, I know... We talked about the cowman story, and some people think it's just a story, but um, I know, let's see, of the family, there was, of course, the mother and father, and then they had two children, a son and a daughter. And the daughter's husband uh, of that real story, I know him, and he told me that <clears throat> he thinks the story is real because all everything lines up, and his father, uh, father-in-law wouldn't talk about it. So, but in that story, they talk about... Um, where the creature's tr- apparently trying to entice the children to it. And then when, when the adult comes in, it smashes the window out. And there's another precedent for that. T.W. talked about the first time he, uh, as a cop, got involved with the Bigfoot subject. And he was sent out on a disturbance call. And there was an elderly Hispanic couple. And apparently one of the creatures had smashed in their kitchen window explosively. And then... When the gentleman ran around to the front door to see who was out there, the creature was there, and he took a swipe at him and just barely missed him. So those are a couple examples of things that they will do. So, yeah, the time, very... that my, it, the time that that one was uh, messing with my air conditioner, I think I told you that I actually was planning on hitting out the front door uh, on the porch there with my shotgun and firing off and then i got to thinking that you know that might be exactly what he was (laughs) hoping that i would do it could be it's like when people say well why do they slap the side of a house they're trying to get a head count they're trying to see what their opposition is there yeah i don't think they have any fear if it's just one or two people no but if you've got more than one uh one or two people in there then you know they don't want to have to deal with a group of people it's absolutely a numbers game and i'm sure that goes back to ancient times long long forgotten human interaction with them you know we're we're kind of nasty as a group but if you and even if you mess with one or two more are going to come back so it's not a not a bold proposition to mess with human beings well, can I interject something else here, too? And yeah. I, uh, I think um, this is something that uh, I think actually you and, and, and Tom and I discussed this once before, but I think the, the fascination with children is a very unhealthy proposition. And I see these stories, we go back to the 
the gentleman that does the uh, the stories on the missing folks, and a lot often, very oftentimes, there there are children involved. And there's one thing that all apes, gorillas, chimpanzees, not so much the orangutans, but it is a definite thing in your um, uh, monkeys, macaques, and even some of the other. Um, I could start naming off different types of monkeys that do it, but they call it kidnapping. And I think you and I, if you remember, we talked about this before, mm-hmm. that they will kidnap um, a lot of times in monkey groups. It's a um, um, hierarchical thing. Uh, uh, a higher-ranking female or even a male will grab a baby and uh, run off with it for a period of time um, and keep that infant sometimes even to the point of the infant dying because it's been taken off the mother for so long Mm -hmm. i think my feelings are and i could be very very wrong on this but i think that that is exactly um what bigfoot does um and with baboons now baboons do this as well and uh, you'll see it a lot with your alpha males will do that but most generally they will they will immediately kill the infant and then consume them. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to say that I'm not sure that Bigfoot wouldn't do the same thing in that regard. But uh, um, I guess we don't have any evidence of that. But I don't think that they would have any hesitation if the opportunity arose to snatch a child because uh, I've listened to some of these accounts of these children that they have actually found alive and some that are deceased with some of the markings and such that are on them, and then where they are placed when they are found alive. This sounds so much like how uh, apes uh, sometimes place their infants, and I just think, oh my gosh, this sounds so much like kidnapping within these uh, ape and monkey groups. Yeah, I I, I agree. And, you know, of course, the, the predatory component to that, too, I mean, because... You know, as a predator, you're going to go after the young, the sick, you know, whatever the easiest target is. Yeah, the weak and the old. Exactly, (laughs) exactly. You know, that's interesting because that kind of brings some clarification to, you know, we get a lot of reports of these things. You know, they're looking in the windows at the kids. It's, it's, uh, you know, it's a very um, sinister behavior. And, well, you know, we had Lee on who went to the family on the Oregon coast. Yeah, the one I to... sent him up to. We had we had a family on the Oregon coast who was asking for help because they had a number of small children. I think they were all under the age of 10. And these things would come around and they would just stare in the windows at night at these kids sleeping. And, and they were scared to death for, for good reason. So, you know, Lee and I talked and I had him go up there and employ some of the methods to get rid of the creatures, and it worked. Well, smiling is not a good thing, too. You hear a lot of kids say that they were smiling at them. It's a lip flip. And you remember my friend Chuck talked about the one that came up and smiled through his window of his truck. Smiling is not a good thing. No. Primate smile. No. <laughs> it's not really a smile, folks. <laughs> no. Now, that's why well, they I, always tell us don't smile at the don't smile at the chimpanzees. <laughs> right, exactly, because you're you're challenging them. 
It's not the same meaning with us. No, that's, ex- you know, and that's just it. You know, we, t- we talked before about people anthropomorphize a lot of things. You know, it's just what we do. And with these things, you don't want to do that because it's not, not a good ending sometimes. You know, if you're trying to, you know, you place your attributes on them and they don't see it that way. Mm-mm, not at all. I think I think Tom okay. Seward brought up a good point. Um, you know, from a Native American perspective, if you encounter one, uh, back away the same way you came, and then leave the area. That's just you just don't want to mess with them. I wouldn't want to turn my back on them either. No, um, I, I know when I ran from the two I encountered, I I, I think I, I think I backed away a little bit first. I don't know. I just I turned tail and took off. <laughs> You know, hoping I wasn't going to get grabbed. <laughs> just like the puppy dog. <laughs> yep, just like my dog. He was smart. He was smarter than me in that situation. You know, and, and you think about it, you, you don't want to back away from one of these things. I mean, you don't want to turn your back on it. But if you're backing away, how do you know there's not another one? The one that you see is actually a distraction, and, and there's actually one behind you that's uh, that's the one you really need to worry about well, in my case i knew there were two i found out there was a second one that, that i had, had apparently walked by in the brush and actually there were three in that group I, I i don't know we didn't see tracks of more than the two but so i don't know where the third one was but yeah you're right i mean you don't know where the other ones are yeah that's interesting i did i did not know that you had three of them so there's three separate tracks and that's no, no. There, were, there were two sets but i knew there were three creatures when i talked to the state trooper mark pittinger later that summer he had seen all three and then green and him had also told me that there were three in that group other people had seen them but they were the same ones that i encountered but i don't i don't know where the third one was we only found two sets of tracks wow well and pittinger he was the one isn't he the cop that found all those coyote bodies yeah. and just could get out of there quick enough yeah he said what they what he he tracked them he, you know he'd seen all three of them they all three of the creatures walked right in front of his patrol car one evening and uh, <laughs> he told me he says I, I was sitting there making out reports and i know the exact place where he was sitting and uh he heard a noise to his right and there was an embankment on both sides of the road you know how like where there's a hill sometimes they'll just cut they'll cut through the hill and they're leaving these sharp embankments on both sides that's the kind of place it was and on the right side, he heard this noise in the gravel. So he looked up, and here comes these creatures, one after the other, within, you know, five, ten feet of his car in front of in the headlights. So he got a very good look at them. And apparently they didn't even pay attention to him. They just walked across the road, and they were gone. Uh, so he was tracking them another time in that same area. And he came upon a bunch of coyote carcasses, he said. And he said from what he gathered very quickly was they were apparently using they were mimicking coyotes and they were drawing them in and when the coyotes would get too you know too close to them they'd snatch them up by the hindquarters and he said they were smashing their heads against alder trees 10 feet off the ground and they were tearing apart tearing them apart and eating them really yeah so drawing in the coyotes that that just goes back to the area that you and i were in a few months ago and prior to that we, I was there with a couple guys, and we heard one of them exclaimed, that is not blank coyotes. 
Sort of like coyotes, but it was off. It was definitely not coyotes. Well, you know, John Green had recordings. People, had, locals had recorded the screams there. And and it was funny. They talked about how, on the tape, uh, he, he gave me a copy of the tape he had. And you hear the screams. And, he, and for the untrained ear, you'd say, oh, that's coyote. But they were different sounds. They had somebody take, and, you know, we're talking early 1970s technology, so they had a bunch of extension cords. And they ran from a house out to this stump, and they put a, a, a tape recorder out there and then left it on. And they recorded known coyotes. And when you play the two recordings together, it was almost night and day difference. At first, the Bigfoot sounds sounded like coyote. But they were just, they were very clear. They were consistent. In other words, from start to stop in each vocalization, it was very, um, uh, the amplification was the same all the way across you know what I mean? There weren't, yeah, there were no, yeah, so sort of. there weren't any highs, lows, there were no yipping, barking, stuff like that, that you got on the known coyote stuff that had, there were ranges all over the place. There were multiples, you know, multiple animals. And it was the yippy, yeah. barky, that kind of stuff. The first set of recordings, there was none of that. So it was, yeah, that's funny because it was, that's what we heard. It's sort of artificial. almost. It was night and day difference. So apparently they were using wow. they were using that sound to draw coyotes in, and it worked. You know that, but that cracks me up. That story, you know, he goes in there, he's got his thirty out six with him, and then there's dead coyotes all over the place, and he is like, okay, it's time to leave. <laughs> you know, well, you know, it was either Green or Dan. I don't remember which one of my because I I was asking him about Pitted or what kind of guy he was. And, you know, I was, I was just a 17-year-old kid at the time, so I'm asking about what kind of guy he is. You know, he, Pittenger and I had a good rapport. We talked a lot while he was there at the camp, and he told me a lot of stuff. He was a pretty cool guy. And uh, But they said, yeah, there was some protest up in Seattle, and it was a peaceful protest, and he was the only person injured. <laughs> so, so that's the kind of cop he was. He was pretty, pretty tough cop, but he was a really nice guy, you know, and... Um, but it scared him to death, he told me. He says, I was so afraid that they were going to be still in the area that I crawled out of there so they wouldn't detect my presence. Yeah. You know, that's kind of been one of the fears that I've had is, you know, you've got a picture of the deer hanging in the tree. And I'm, I've always, you know, you're sort of torn between wanting to see something like that and really not wanting to stumble into a situation like that. Can you imagine that you walk, you're out there in the woods and you walk up and you find this, a full deer hanging 11 feet up in a tree, you know, it's yeah. kind of like, Oh my God, you know, what do you do in that situation? Right. Right. And, and, you know, for the argument that, Oh, this is a done by a mountain lion. Mountain lions don't have the jaw muscles. They, they don't do that. Yeah, they, they bury do. their, Right, yeah. Just like a bear does, they, so, they put it in a shallow grave and they'll go back periodically and eat off it. Right, there's nothing in North America, other than our favorite topic, that you know that does that. And well, you and I know a guy that, the fish, they found a bunch of fish hanging in the trees. Yeah, I mean, you know, and like the pictures I have, we got from Jeremiah, uh, that he got from, <clears throat> excuse me, a lady in, in Upper New York. That's where we have pictures of deer hanging 11 feet up in a tree and not just one time but the same tree was used a couple years in a row right and you know those those deer i don't think they're i mean they're you know it doesn't look like anything has feasted on they weren't them. touched 
Yeah, they're untouched. And then and that's like one of the areas um, that I go to. I sent you a picture of that deer skull, pristine. Mm-hmm. The antlers are intact. It's a clean skull like it just came out of a museum. And that's pretty rare in nature to find a, a deer skull with the antlers attached. It is. It is. And it's even more virtually impossible to find one that is just absolutely in perfect condition like that. Right. Milo, what do you got? Got questions? Did we lose Milo? Well, I tell you what, I got question number three from Janae. Oh, he is. Okay, go ahead. Are you there, Milo? Yeah, I'm here. Okay, you you got... Um, Go ahead, man. So, as far as with all this stuff about... Um, making yourself bigger or walk away, walk with your, how about eye contact? Is that a, a no-no or <laughs> a no-no? <laughs> Direct eye contact with a, a great, a great ape is an act of aggression. Okay. <laughs> and you, here's another interesting point that goes along with that. Native folks always say, don't ever look them in the eye. And, and of course, the the reasoning there is that you or family members will die afterwards. But it's probably, it's probably a reinforcement of that fact that they've had bad experiences by looking at one in the eye. Okay. D- did they give any indication just how fast you're going to die, like within seconds or? <laughs> no, I can't remember. I, I've heard it a few different ways, but... I think it depends on the source, you know, which tribe talks about that. But I think it's a universal thing. That don't don't look them in the eyes. Yeah, but it makes sense. I mean, and there's a lot of things that humans do. They'll they'll put they'll build a story around some behavior, you know, that sort of reinforces why you should or shouldn't do that thing. But the bottom line is, in this case, you know, it, it, like you said, Forrest, it's an act of aggression. Don't look at one in the eyes. So does that go with that smiling too, huh? Well, the smile, the smile is a challenge. It is a challenge. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So when we had John smile, on, John talked about it. They look, call it in anthropology. They call it the lip flip. Well, that's yeah, you're lip flipping at you. You better, uh, you better just look down and start backing the line. Yeah. Yep. So, well, so pay heed, folks. If you're out there and you run into one. Don't look them in the eye, and if they smile at you, put your head down and back away. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I think about all those National Geographic shows where you see the chimps doing that. They do a lip flip. Yeah, right. Well, and and two, let me interject here. You will also, if you watch them, uh, oftentimes the chip head sees uh, gorillas, monkeys, well, if you have another one that's doing that to them, uh, showing aggress- aggressive actions towards another uh, member of their troop, that one that they're showing aggression to will usually duck their head down. And that is a submissive. And you will sometimes see uh, see them doing uh, the lip smacking, which is uh, basically it's I'm apologizing. I, I want to be friends. I want to be friends. You know, I don't want I don't want you attacking me. So. Uh, that's when you see lip smacking, that's basically 
apologizing and consoling. And family groups will do that, too, with the lip smacking. If you have a group of them, they'll all be lip smacking, and it's like, you know, hey, we're all friends here. Let's all get along, and, you know, kumbaya. But uh, if you've got one that's acting aggressively uh, towards another uh, member of their troop, that that uh, monkey or ape or whatever will duck its head and then usually start lip smacking. Like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm I, uh, I uh, I got you mad at me. You know, here's a thought. We get a lot of people who talk about, you know, if, if they, they feel like they're around the creatures or being followed or whatever, and they hear noises. I kind of wonder, now that you said that, if some of these noises, and oftentimes noises are mistaken for other things, um, I wonder if they're hearing that go on and thinking it's something else. Hmm. I don't know. I never thought about just that. A, that. Just that, a possibility. I, it's a possibility. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. It's interesting sometimes, you know, a piece of information will come into the conversation and then you have to look at it from a different perspective. I had a, my, my anthropology professor who was my advisor and actually head of the department when I was in college. He talked about that. He, and he was an interesting guy. He said, if you really want to know a subject, he said, what you want to do is visualize a sphere and, and visualize all these tiny little points all the way around it, hundreds of them. And he said, to, only tr- to truly understand the subject, you have to look at it from every one of those perspectives. And I thought, that's kind of interesting. You might not get all those, but if you do a lot of them from different angles, you get a much better view of things. And when stuff like this comes up, um, I-, I think it provides a little bit more information into what we're thinking about with this. So, Will, are you saying that when people are either surrounded or these you know, they're being paced out of the woods and they're hearing noises and they can't describe them because you know what a twig mm-hmm. snap sounds like. So you're saying there could be other noises. I've heard people talk about other noises, hearing other things. I mean, of course, yeah. they hear, uh, well, things, here's an example. You know, when they talk about wood knocks, well, wood knocks might be tongue pops because I brought that up to witnesses and they'll say, oh yeah, it was sound, sounded more like that than a wood knock. I didn't know how the, they didn't have the words to use. Right. So when you say tongue pops. Well, a lot of people don't know about tongue pops. Exactly. Yeah. A lot of people don't know that they'll be tongue popping. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, the lift noises might be with that also. I mean, they, they could certainly be, you know, doing these hierarchical things, even in movements. Well, uh, I've, I have a real problem with all these people that go out there, and this was, again, another problem that I had with not finding Bigfoot, was going out there and do all these screams and there's hooping and hollering and beating on the trees. And, you know, first off, you have no idea what that actually means right. to a troop of Bigfoot or even to an individual Bigfoot. Um, so, you know, why are you doing stuff that just because you've heard them do that, that you assume that you know what their their meaning behind it is. When, and that's exactly all you're doing. You're assuming that you know what their uh, the meaning behind it is. Yeah. And, you know, truthfully speaking, we don't have a Jane Goodall. We don't have a Donald <laughs> Coffee that's gone out there and sat and lived with them. And you know what? I'm not going to be that. <laughs> <laughs> what are you saying, Forrest? <laughs> And here's another part of that as well. You know, they know where each other are, different groups are, what those groups sound like, what they do. When they hear humans do it, they're going to know darn well it's humans doing it, whether it's beating on trees, screaming, whatever it is. And they're not going to reciprocate with that at all. Exactly. Well, 
and, and another thought i'm sorry is, it may well, be different do, i think they might be doing it to confuse uh the the those stupid naked eights it could be sure <laughs> <laughs> naked eights i love that well you know that comes to the way i look at going out into the wilderness is you got to acclimate to it first and these people just jump in there thinking that everything's a bigfoot yeah exactly you got to be critical when you're thinking about this i i watch it's funny I, tom and i were talking before we started this it could be because and I, i'm not going to dwell on dog man because you know we're not talking werewolves um but i watched this video just to see what you know one of these witnesses described <clears throat> And it was mm-hmm. supposed to, it was, it was billed as a dogman encounter. But the first part of the video was where the mother and the teenage kids were out in this area camping. And the first thing was they had themselves kind of freaked out being afraid of it being a spooky area. Kind of, they were setting the stage, as Tom said. And when they actually did encounter one of the things, and I'm not sure how they got dogman from it because it was a classic type two Sasquatch encounter. You know, with things going quiet, and then the encounter itself, um, there was no description. It was outside of. Then what I mean by the type two is it had it had pronounced canines, which the type two does. Um, but everything else was classic Sasquatch. So I don't know. They label these things things that they are not. But I think it's a predisposition to think that way. Hmm. Well, well, when I hear werewolf, I think supernatural and, and, you know, mysterious stuff. Whereas, to me, Bigfoot is just nature. And, right. You know, and so when you hear somebody say uh, werewolf, you know, it's like, okay, I'll bring my silver fork and, <laughs> and I'll. I'll... <laughs> you know, Are you going to have dinner with a werewolf, just... Milo, or stab him? <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, that has no. a basis in European uh, mythology there for the the werewolf. Yeah, right. But I was gonna I was gonna interject something here because I actually had looked at uh, or watched a or looked at a picture that a gentleman had taken, and I know that they've had several of these pictures come up that uh, you see these um, Bigfoot, and I, I think they're a Bigfoot. Sure. I don't think that there's such a thing as a dog man, uh, you know, running around, a canine running around, but uh, I, I saw this picture. Somebody had turned up. They were missing a, a white dog. And you probably know which picture I'm referring to. They had a dog that was missing from a, 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 some park or something where people had uh, gone camping. And this gentleman was taking a picture off of a bridge, and he didn't even realize till he got home that he had this creature in the picture, and it was um, – carrying appeared to be carrying a white a large white dog under its arm and i was sitting here looking at that picture and i kept looking at it and looking at it i thought wait a minute that doesn't look like your standard bigfoot uh and this thing had a lot of facial uh nasal prognathism uh you know exactly what i'm talking about like uh, on a baboon and uh, that's why yeah the type i had questioned yes the type threes and i was not clear on that whether anybody had ever and I thought, you know, maybe this is what they're calling the dog man, because I don't think there's an upright exactly. uh, cross between a man and a dog out there. Um, I, sure, dogs get up on their hind legs sometimes, so do wolves. But, uh, you know, I don't think they're running around on two legs all the time. But I do think that there is a possibility that we have something that is more akin to a baboon, a lower order 
Bigfoot, if you want to say that. Uh, and because that's exactly what it looked like to me was an upright baboon. Yeah. And, and baboons are right proficient, so quite that, proficient, actually, on two, two legs. Yeah, absolutely. So would that be more like a primal, a primal Bigfoot then? Well, it's probably it's probably a genetic throwback of some kind because if they if they <clears throat> went to a flat face like we did because you know in our history we eventually had that protruding face also, but we we evolved into this, and these guys probably did too. So that protruding face is is either, you know, that particular version didn't, you know, evolve out of that or it's something that came back. Okay. Yeah. You see that in your uh, your baboons and your drills and mandrills. See, all your drills and mandrills used to be called uh, baboons as well. They now have them as uh, classified as a suborder of baboon. And uh, the drills and mandrills, when I, what I'm referring to, are the ones that have actually have beautiful coloration on their uh, faces. You'll see the blue and the red, and uh, and then they have the great big red behinds. So. Right. Uh, uh, yeah, and they all, but they all, they look like a baboon, um, and I mean, uh, they're actually not near as aggressive as the the standard, uh, you know, baboon. Well, that was one of the questions I had: was the type threes aren't they reported reportedly uh, a lot more aggressive? Uh, we don't really uh, have much lo- more. Dangerous we don't really have a lot of information on them, to be honest. Okay. They're not as populous as the other versions are, but they are out there. And aren't they kind of restricted to well a certain region? Not restricted. They're primarily all along the Mississippi River drainage system, but like with other Sasquatches, they're elsewhere as well, I'm sure. I, mean, I always wondered if there was any type of interbreeding between the two of them, but if, they're, if they like baboons and... Uh, other monkeys they're not they're not genetically able to uh, hybridize you know an interesting window into that might be like with the uh, the couple that i interviewed in alabama a while back um tammy and james where they actually saw two different types of creatures there there was one on the property that was more like you know what we we see in the patterson film and apparently it was sitting down in some tall grass or whatever but they were watching it and two or three of these other creatures and they were they're very different looking they were kind of skinny almost almost sickly looking but they looked diff- very different than the first one and when the first one saw those individuals approaching they said it got a disgusted <clears throat> excuse me got a disgusted look on its face and apparently around that time they caught wind of the first one and turned around and made a hasty retreat hmm. so that's interesting apparently they don't uh the two, the variations don't get along too well. I got a question that goes back to all the kidnapping stuff. Is there like, do they gang up on in like the alpha male or anything? Or if it's stills one of their kids or what? You talking about within a group? Yeah. What I was told is they well, is they have very swift justice. <laughs> in other words, the alpha if the alpha the other ones get out of line on a group, the alpha will kill it immediately. And I think that's probably no, consistent. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. No, no. I, I now I took 
Milo, I took this as what you were meaning is that the alpha male kidnapped a little one. Well, yeah, I, I okay. that what I I thought that's what if the alpha male does it, he either kills it right away and consumes it, or is there any is that like a punishment for like you had a baby without my permission? What 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 kind? No, because really you don't see um, except. The only time I've ever really seen monogamous uh, groups or uh, monogamous situations, uh, are they're rare within chimpanzees and within monkey groups. Uh, you you think there's an alpha alpha male over a group, but those females, if there's a, a, a male that's running around on the, the periphery of the group, oftentimes they'll go and breed with them. Chimpanzees... Um, um, there's probably a term that I shouldn't use with them, but they're, uh, they are prolific with breeding with different males. They, you know, and there's a reason for that too, being that the father never really knows who the father of the babies are. And so therefore they're less likely to, to the ones that are on the periphery of actually going and killing one. But they do have an account where, uh, the females, chimpanzees especially will usually go elsewhere to have their babies and then come back into the group with the, the infant uh, within a day or two. They actually had a instance where a researcher was watching a group of chimpanzees and the female did not do that. She had, it was a young female, so she might have just been, uh, you know, not knowing any better, uh, actually had the baby within eyesight of the alpha male. The alpha male, as soon as that baby was born, snatched it and went and killed it and consumed it. Now, with what you will usually see in a kidnapping situation is whether it be a male or female that has kidnapped that infant, the mother to it will, instead of acting aggressively, she will usually just patiently follow that kidnapper and stay very close. And then when the opportunity arises, Oftentimes, she will turn around and snatch that baby away from that kidnapper. Uh, but the reason they don't act aggressively is because uh, that baby could be actually killed if they get into a big fight. So they're less likely to act aggressively and just patiently follow them and then uh, snatch the baby when the opportunity arises. You know, with these okay. with these Bigfoot stories, there you know witnesses witness okay. accounts are only a very small window into behavior. Mm-hmm. So you know, throughout a twenty four hour time period, the only a few moments or minutes, and so it's very small. But sometimes we get some interesting details of things that are seen. There was a story from the late sixties where a logger saw three of the creatures: a male, a female, and a very young one. And what was interesting about that story was that the witness noted that at all times the female kept the juvenile or kept her body between the juvenile and the male and that sort of makes me wonder if the male was not that young one's father and you know maybe she was afraid that it was going to do something to the juvenile so that very well could be the possibility yes so we we do get some interesting pieces like that i mean it's sort of uh makes you go hmm but it's it's interesting information it's important stuff well when Langers take over uh, troops of monkeys uh, when you have a, a male that takes over in uh, the position of alpha male. They actually go through and will start killing all the infants. And you'll see all the females grabbing up their infants and, and 
you know, running to areas where they can be protected, and they'll actually get in groups themselves to protect their infants. But, yeah, the males will, uh, the male that takes over uh, the alpha's position, uh, he will go through and try to kill. It's just like with a lion killing all the, uh, you know, the the other's progeny. Like the predecessors or, yeah, yeah. I got it. Yeah, they're sort of re-establishing their gene pool, so to speak, in a group. Yeah, mm-hmm. kind of like the red-headed step kid. <laughs> the crap out of it. Yeah, I, I gotcha. Tom, we... I'm just, it's just speaking my little that way I understand what's going on. Tom, we got any other questions? Well, we have question number three from Janae. So I got to, okay. I, I just want to, real quick, I want to yeah. say thank you, Janae, because she has some very, uh, very good questions. Very insightful. Um, so the, she wants to know if there's any reports of Bigfoot in Hawaii. Have we heard anything about this? I haven't, no. So that would be the one state where I doubt. we have no evidence. <laughs> yeah, I kind of doubt yeah. they're there. That would have been something you would, you'd have to have all the, you know, the, the situation for them to be able to survive in a place like that. So I, I just don't see it there. I don't think they have any primates there. I don't think so, other, other than us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow, we run rampant over there. Tom, do we have anything else? Um, yeah, we do. We we have a couple questions here. We got uh, Ron wants to know. He says uh, from from previous interviews that we've had on the show, uh, when the Bigfoot enters a barn or a stable, we kind of went into this little bit, where horses or livestock are, um, why do they bypass attacking a horse, which has more uh, caloric value than the uh, bags of food storage? And so this almost, um, Forrest kind of goes towards your recent situation. I was thinking that. <laughs> well, I would I would think, first of all, it's entering a human-made structure. So it's probably going to want to grab whatever's easy and fast. Makes sense. Yeah. And if you kill the horse, you're going to create a ruckus. And, and out, of, and out in pastures, they don't typically attack horses and full-grown cows either. Well, taking down an animal the size of a horse... It, first off, they'd have a difficult time doing it because mine, uh, my barn, particular barn, has bars on all the um, um, the stall doors. So they'd have to actually climb over those or actually rip the door off to be able to get in with the horse. But, you know, it goes back to the same old thing we were talking about with damaging themselves in a fight. Mm-hmm. Uh, a horse is not going to be an easy animal to, uh, to kill. And by the time that uh, Bigfoot's ripped open that door that horse is already presenting uh he, he's not going to be standing there looking at you he's going to have his butt turned towards you ready to start kicking and uh that is uh one of them that's why a horse turns his butt to you because that's their main uh, source of defense um and a big foot's not want to it, it's a lot easier to open a bag because that's not going to present a, a fight uh, a horse is going to present a fight to you they could damage you they could hurt you and and then what have you accomplished? That's right. If the bag hurts you, you better become a vegetarian. It's time to move yeah, on. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I I take that to heart because I turn my butt towards people, and that's my major defense too. 
We won't go there. <laughs> but, you know, it sort of goes back to other predators, you know, that that's why they target yes. the young and sick is because Bozo. those are easier targets. They're less defendable, you know. It, it's going to be much less of a problem for them. Well, I haven't had any activity since we put the chains and locks on the door. Oh, that's a good thing. A little deterrence. You know, it's funny. They, they, they won't unless they're really aggressive and really want something in there. They don't. They, you know, if you lock things up, they won't mess with it too much. They might come up and test it, but uh, as far as ripping it off, it's it's not likely. Yeah, I, I got a question because I was talking to a couple people about you know how you. Uh, the techniques for for uh, getting your plaster uh, the the footprints plaster casting it, yeah so what's a good technique? Well, I outlined it in my book Bigfoot Fieldwork One Hundred One. I, I give okay. a step by step way of doing it in there if people are interested in that. Great. It's not That's a hard cool. process, but there there are no. certain steps you definitely want to follow. Well, that and practice makes perfect, too. That's very true. You know, so, yeah. And then I have another one where it goes with the difficulty of terrain. Now, I know when we were in Mount St. Helens that, I mean, it, it was like effort to climb up. Oh, yeah. You know, it was like for every two steps we went up, it was like three backwards almost. Something people you don't know. consider with terrain is they'll look at a map and they'll say, okay, you know, from point A to point B is this far, but they don't consider, you know, the vertical distance. And if you've got a lot of hills to go up and down, that adds to your, to right. the actual work it takes to get to a place. Because a lot of people assume it's like, okay, it's just you on a, on a, on, like you're walking the neighborhood. It's not, you got equipment, you got, you know, the 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 fatigue level. Mm-hmm. I mean, so when everybody thinks that, well, oh, I just saw one of these climb up a hill. Okay, yeah, that's what they do. We they don't live do out there. That. <laughs> yeah, they're yeah. they're designed for it. <laughs> so it, it's like, well, how come you didn't keep up with it? <laughs> well, in the first place, are you just going to follow something like that? Why would that? Yeah, I, you know, that's most... why we got people like whom shall not be spoken of. <laughs> You're talking about the bait. The bait, yes, the bait. <laughs> but yeah, I was like, I was looking at that kind of stuff where, um, where the, the I guess I, I I I'm trying to find a common ground for terminology where for us as you know what we do, what kind of things to look for when we're out versus uh, what we take for granted. Mm-hmm. Does that... I, well, the basic thing is you go out there and find something you're not familiar with. You have to question yourself just how familiar I am with the, my surroundings out here. Do, what do I know mm-hmm. about animals? What do I know about their behaviors? Um, an example is the first time I found these these territorial markings of broken trees... You know, we were way out off the beaten path. You know, we were on the backside of a watershed mm-hmm. heading towards another drainage system. 
and you know more than 2,000 feet in elevation up this slope and we find this tree and I my first thought was well how did this occur Bigfoot wasn't in the first part of my thinking was how did this happen because it's really unusual it stuck out like a sore thumb uh, middle, middle of July a 90 degree break that was freshly done eight feet off the ground in a covered canopy no markings whatsoever on it and you know when you go to come right down to it then we found more of them in a line and I still didn't have any answers till I talked to a friend of mine from the Klamath Reservation he chuckled and he says oh you finally found that and I said, finally yeah, I found remember what? you saying that. Yeah. He says, yeah, that's that's these things. It's, it's the big guys. It's their territorial markings. I said, oh, yeah, it would have been nice to. to be f- yeah, I finally? said, oh, would have been nice to have known that sooner. <laughs> right. Uh, what uh, What else do I need to know about? <laughs> yeah. He just kind of chuckled offhandedly like, oh, yeah, you finally found that. <laughs> uh, and well, you could have told me about them, too. <laughs> and then he told me what the line, what the line represented. It represented, you know, the the dominant male, the alpha, telling the rest of the group, this is where we're, this is the direction to the next feeding area. And they, because they were in a line about a hundred yards apart, these trees. A hundred yards. Wow. It was about as That's... far as you could see until, yeah. it was, until it was too brushy. Then you you'd go to the next one. And, and from that one, and I measured each one from the ground up. They, they almost, it was consistent within an inch or two of the same height. Uh, right around mm-hmm. eight feet. Eight, the first one was eight feet, one inches, and then the next one was eight feet, and so on. Um, and we got to we got to thirteen of these. So we we're going through a lot of brush, a lot of countryside, and then I, I, it dawned on me the time because we were up there right. in the afternoon. And I thought, geez, if we don't get back across the river, because we had to wade the river to get it, get across the other side to where our car was, and uh, <clears throat> I said it's going to be dark before we get out of here if we don't leave right now. So we had to leave it. But then we had Lisa on. Remember, Tom? She found the exact same thing. No, is that with that? Is it with uh, a certain seasonal time? No. No. So it's it's like a a reoccurring occurrence for all seasons. Well, I would think I would think it depends. I don't think they do it all the time. Mm-hmm. It, it probably depends on how close the group members are to one another when they're feeding in an area. I think in this area they were spread out quite a bit, and uh, and that was just a way for you know for the alpha to say, "Hey, we're going. This is where we're going next." In other cases, they may be closer together, so it may be just you know um, visual communication or whatever that says, "Hey, we're going to go on to this next place." Wow. Okay. Because you don't find, you don't, I mean, number one, you aren't going to find it near roads. It's out in the middle of nowhere. Right. You know, it's interesting because once I heard you talking about that, I found, and and I've told you about this in the past, in in one area, I found six of them. And I measured the distance uh, on Google Earth because I took a marked them on my gps they're about 110 yards apart right and roughly formed a line and the last one pointed in a direction towards a uh an area that i think was of interest to them but every single one of them was about eight feet and i did the same thing one was eight feet one Mm -hmm. inch but they're all about the same height the only one that was a little bit off was seven and a half feet and that was on a very very steep angle so um you know, he could have just reached over and snapped it. You sure. know, he, he I, I would... think it. 
And I think it goes back to, again, being familiar with your surroundings, having grown up in the Northwest, you know, and being out in the forest from about four years old with my, my dad, you know, you, you get to know, you know, Tom, you're from Oregon. So, you know, especially with the way winters are in Milo, you just get to know what things, what weather does to things. Yeah. And how, how things break and, and different types of vegetation, how the weather affects them. And when you see something like this now to the untrained eye or unfamiliar person, you might go to the Northwest and you see that and it just blends into the background. You never give it a second thought, but once you know what you're looking for, it just jumps right out at you because it's no, not a that term. common. Yeah, exactly. There's a term in archaeology called Uparts, uh, out of place artifact. Mm-hmm. Are you guys familiar with that? And, and that's kind of what it makes me think of is yeah, it stands out. It's it out of place. Out. It doesn't. Yeah, but if, what, but if you don't know what you're looking happen. for, I mean, I've been I've been in you know trucks driving out in the middle of nowhere, and and spot one of those, it just jumps out, and even going fast, and you see it. And yeah. I'm like, whoa, got to stop, 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 stop. Here's, here's yep, a market, yep, yep. <laughs> you know. And and like when we were there in September, same thing. You know, you, you see oh, lots yeah. of vegetation, but the ones that stand out, and I pointed them out to you guys, the ones that are the actual markings, and it was very clear what they were. Yes. Well, yeah. Can, and then can there's I the one. Go ahead, Forrest. Um, <clears throat> first time I ever saw this, um, and going up uh, the Cassiar Highway was the first time I'd ever seen this. And we were on our way to Alaska. And the trees turned upside down and driven into the ground with their root, root structures to the uh, facing upwards. And I had never seen such a thing in my life. Um, and actually, we saw several of them that way up and down the highway and I uh, having traveled in and out of Alaska for so many years I've seen it all over Canada and I mean I'm not talking about they're everywhere everywhere but uh, you do periodically see them and um, what what's your idea on that I just thought that was the most peculiar thing I had ever seen in my life and you I'm know. familiar with snow, <laughs> snow load having lived in Alaska for 17 years you know what snow load yeah. uh, produces breakage and such and it's almost always everything's going the same way so right, right. Yeah. you know the trees upside down I really don't know I we've got a friend up in Alaska I'll have to ask him and see what what their folks you know make of all that I like to go with what the native folks say because they, they know what they're talking about. Yeah. Well, and Will, wouldn't this be kind of an invitation to anybody in the native community or the First Nations up in Canada, if you guys have any information on this, uh, get a hold of us. Just shoot us an email, questions at creekdevil.com. Yeah, um, especially like Fred. To, uh, Fred was who I was referring to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Well, I want to ask... Forced a question. Okay. And I hope this is okay. And if it's not, we'll edit it out. How's that sound? <laughs> uh, hey, go ahead. You know me. <laughs> I know you. You and your friend were, I think you were up in either Alaska or up in the Yukon. And some two of these things walked across the road. Totally not Bigfoot related. It is for the lack of a better description you said it looked like a hyena uh, yeah oh i'll be happy to tell you that that you're not you're not bothering me in the least 
I was actually, uh, that was on the Cassiar Highway again. Uh, most Canadians refer to it as the Coastal Highway. I didn't travel. It actually cut a lot of miles off, uh, you know, going into uh, Whitehorse there. And we were, um, and if I remember correctly, uh, we were in British Columbia still. Because the next morning, um, we actually stopped at a cafe and um, asked them. And they, they immediately responded. Uh, there, was, there were several people in there, and I think you remember me telling you, that didn't say a word. They just all sat there very quietly. But one guy popped off and said, oh, what were y'all smoking last night? And the lady that, I, that had, was riding with me, she turned around. She said, we weren't smoking a damn thing and we weren't drinking this was like two o'clock in the morning and i'll be happy to describe what they were but we had asked them if when did they acquire animals that looked like hyenas in uh british columbia um i had never seen such a thing and uh these two animals uh we um i was coming down the hill and most of the cassiar is actually um gravel but it because the truck the Loggers use these road, this road a lot. They keep it very, very well maintained. So it's, uh, you know, a really nice flat surface. But we were uh, coming down a slight grade, and I saw some eyeballs off on the side, and I didn't know if it was deer or a bear at first. And then this thing stepped out, so I had slowed down. And I was pulling a six-horse trailer, and we had it loaded with horses. And in fact, she had two horses of her own that had just come out of Washington with me. And um, I was, uh, I slowed down and I actually came to a complete stop. And we both sat there and watched this animal step out onto the road. And it, it turned out there was two of them and both of them, both of them turned around and looked full at us. And it had a wolf-like head but I, it was a, a brownish gray color, and but I could actually see it looked like uh, lateral darker stripes coming off the wither area, which is the shoulder area of it. And it, the back sloped down, and it had a it had a tail, but it was a short tail. And um, when I say short, it was probably maybe down to the hocks. Um, I had never seen anything like that in my life. And she and I both sat there and I remember she just, I mean, we never took our eyes off the animal and it looked at us and then it slowly starts walking across the road. And then lo and behold, here comes another one. And it was a, just a slightly larger one. So at that point I could tell that one was a male. There was no doubt in my mind. It was a male and it looked at a, it literally stopped in the middle of the road and looked at us like, <laughs> you know, um, I wouldn't have gotten out of the truck. No. And, and then it walked across following the other animal and went off into the brush. Now the alders on the, the side of the road up there, I mean, it's, it's thick. I mean, you have, you, you'd have a difficulty going, a human would have difficulty walking in those areas, but of course they just slip on, slipped underneath it and went on off, you know, well, as I told you, Tom, I, I, you know, we both next day just kind of thought, what the heck did we look at and what did we see? Well, nobody evidently had any answers for us, but there was a lot of people in there that could have popped off and said some funny things, but they didn't. And I just had the distinct feeling, and she did too later because we actually kind of talked about it, 
that maybe somebody in there knew more than what they were letting on, but didn't want to say anything. So it was several years later. And I mean, several, like 20 years later, I'm sitting here in Texas watching a show. And I think it was unsolved mysteries. I think, uh, don't hold me to that. Cause I'd be a liar if I told you I knew for sure, but lo and behold, comes on this unsolved mysteries and it was a gentleman he was actually the grandson of the man that shot this animal in montana and he has a little museum up there and i thought oh my god that looks just like what we saw and i told you tom i thought this was the craziest thing i ever did i actually called the sheriff in that town and i said you know you don't have to help me this is the situation i told her the whole story and the lady that answered the phone was very nice she said i actually know that man that owns that museum and i'm going to give you his phone number and she did and i uh, at the time he didn't answer the phone i just left a message but he did call me back and we actually talked about that <clears throat> and i could not believe that what i was looking at um, was an animal that we had seen 20 years before in Canada, but yet this animal has it's stuffed. It's in a uh, a glass case. I and I God, I can't remember the date, but it's it was uh, either the early 1900s or late 1800s when his his uh, grandfather had killed this thing. And then you found one where they had just recently killed one. What in 2018 wasn't it? And, yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. And it and I told you, yeah, it was a little bit hairier than the one that I saw. But then it was summertime when I was up there in Canada. So it's an entirely possibility that they, you know, they're like every other animal. They lose a lot of their fur in the summertime. So uh, but I mean, basically, that was the same animal that that I was look that we we'd seen. And I mean, that just there's there's things out there, folks, that we don't even know exist. Right. And one of the things I want to say, and I want to be crystal clear about this, <clears throat> is this is something that is, you know, we've talked about uh, animals that have gone extinct and all that sort of thing. We are absolutely not talking about anything that could be considered dog man. You know, there's something no, half no, no, man, no. half, yeah, half dog, anything like that. You know, here in Oregon, there are fossils. Of, and they say they're only like 10,000 years old of rhinos and hippos in eastern Oregon. So, but they, they're obviously not here now. They've gone extinct. So, this may just be some sort of a. Or a dire wolf, possibly. Yeah, right. That was a good band, too, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> All right, with that. We're running out of time, folks. We're going to end this segment. Uh, great job, guys. Great discussion today. Everyone stay tuned for the next segment. In Bigfoot history, North Coast, British Columbia, summer and fall, 1962. During the summer, Bob Titmus found 1,200 yards of bipedal tracks in deep moss on Aristizabal Island, much larger than human. In August, he found flat, 14-inch, five-toed tracks with a 42-inch stride in a creek bed on an island in Devastation Channel. In the fall, he found three sets of tracks, 14, 13, and 12 inches, approximately, on a beach on Swindle Island. 
Welcome. This collection of three stories is being brought to you by William Jeffning, and is being narrated by Jim Sower. These stories come to us from California. The first is Eureka, California, 1896. The second is Sasquatch and the Edwards Air Force Base. And the third, Mysterious Shaver Lake. Story number one, Eureka, California, 1896. Interesting old story. In 1965, my mother's friend, an old dear from near Sacramento, showed her a letter. It was transcribed by her daughter, who found some of the usage and language amusing, and she presented it to her grammar school class. No one knows where the original is, it was found pressed into the pages of an old dictionary, but has since been lost or misplaced. Enjoy it. If you use it in your publication, please just refer to me as Jack. I enjoy the fruits of your research and wish you many, many years of success in your endeavor. Regards, Jack, Lakota Sioux, Guide, Outfitter, Guide in our great Northwest. A few weeks back, my friend Jake McCoy and I were in witness to the following of accounts. We were well spent after an uncommon day of awful heat cutting timber. Our days in these woods were usually of a cool and foggy nature, with the heat rarely becoming to our discomfort. After our supper, Jake and I were of a mind to sit by the creek with the next day being Sunday, we were able to enjoy an evening of our own doings. We were smoking and having coffee when we smelt something like a dead animal left to rot in the heat. I remember once coming upon a shot bear that his hunter could not trail, and it had laid and rotted for four days, by my opinion. It gave an awful stench, which would give many a disagreeable stomach. This scent was in similarity to that. We saw nothing out of the expected, but could hear a rustling in the brush just across the creek. Being August, the creek was not more than four or five goodly strides from this bank across. A man could start to a run and jump fully across it, if he were determined of doing so. We saw a large man coming through the trees, and Jake stood up and asked, what in creation it was. As I had just been looking towards the sun, my eyes did not give a clear viewing of what it was. I rubbed my eyes to have a look, and I was not in knowledge of what I saw. It appeared to be a bear at first, but we had not seen any bears in this area, and it walked as a man would on its two legs. If it was a man, he was covered with a dark hair, and long like the mane of a horse, and it was dark brown in color. Jake yelled out, Who goes there? But this man-beast did not make a response. It stopped in its tracks and looked at us from a distance of about seventy paces. We stood, but were froze as 
we wondered of the type of preacher we were in witness to. After just a moment or two, it turned and walked back up the hill in great long strides and with unexpected ease and swiftness. We heard it climb up the hill, and then all was silent. We noticed it walk for twenty or so paces, all of them upright. It had arms like a man's, but of a much bigger size, and greater length than a man's. It must have been of great strength, as we determined it to be greater in height than seven feet. We said nothing to our supervisors, as loafing and insubordination would get you often looking for employment in other parts. Too many men wanted too little work. So, saying anything that would attract attention to yourself in a manner not deemed proper was not born of a good idea. However, an Indian named Joe, who frequented our camp to vend his wares, had told of a mountain giant uncommon to these woods. I explained what we saw, and he said his people often saw these giants. However, he said that most would see them in late night or darkness. The giants did not care to be seen, and were quiet and careful to be hidden. Joe said that he could find tracks all along the creeks and rivers of a morning. I swear the events written here is the truth, and happened with us being of a sound mind and in sobriety. L. T. Mills, 19 August of 1896, Eureka, California, as dictated to L. B. Small, Clerk. This ends the reading of the first story. This next story is entitled Sasquatch and the Edwards Air Force Base Surveillance, written by Doug Trapp. The sun dropped quickly behind the desert rock piles, revealing a deep red glow to the western sky, as Corey Rudolph and I made camp at the east end of Avenue J in Palmdale one spring night in 1977. We had been visiting the area as often as possible in response to several credible Bigfoot reports in this California desert. To the east was nothing but dark black sky with thousands of stars and periodic meteors whizzing by. Our objective was twofold. One, to observe all we could during the night, and two, to get away from the Los Angeles rat race. We had been driving through the areas north of the mountains, separating the Los Angeles area from the desert, in search of clues and people to interview who claimed to have encountered the desert Sasquatch. Through the next three years, Corey and I, and sometimes myself with my faithful red-tailed hawk, Nixon, we gathered as much information on desert Sasquatch activity as we could. In many cases, the witnesses told very similar tales of large, hair-covered, man-like apes observed crossing the highway, or looking in their windows at their homes, usually after midnight. Through these witnesses, we slowly became aware that the military, just north of Lancaster, California, at Edwards Air Force Base, had been witness to these desert man-beasts for several years. We finally made contact with three different military security officers, all of which did not know of the others, who provided us with information relating to what the Air Force knew about these animals. 
Before I continue with this, I must inform the reader that these three men were willing to discuss this with us only because we promised to never reveal their names or ranks, and if we did, they would deny everything. Because I believe in keeping promises, I will comply with their request, but will refer to them only by rank, since I do not believe that their status at the time would indicate or reveal their true identity, thereby keeping my promise. I will also add that I have spoken to five additional ex-military officers who were once stationed at Edwards Air Force Base, and they all claim that what the first three revealed was accurate, and that not much has changed there since the 1970s. The first I interviewed was a lieutenant in charge of security in the sector of Edwards Air Force Base near Rogers Dry Lake. He was primarily responsible for supervising the surveillance activity from sunset to sundown from 1972 to 1975 when he was then transferred to Germany, then retired. This gentleman explained to me that the base security was primarily involved with monitoring for unauthorized entry to the base by curious seekers. The base was highly involved with classified secret aircraft testing at the time, and there were many curious people trying to take photos or just see these things. In addition, the base had a very high level of UFO activity, or, as he put it, alien spacecraft. In fact, he made it clear that these craft were not from Earth, and that the Air Force knew very little about them. When any unauthorized people or alien aircraft entered his perimeter, he was to report it to the higher command, and observe. All of his personnel had top security clearance, and were to discuss nothing of what they saw. He further described some of these crafts to me, but I was not very interested at the time. While they were conducting surveillance one night, always using starlight scopes and motion detectors spread throughout the base, one of the guards reported an infiltration in his perimeter. When asked for details, the guard described a very tall man but not really a man. Perplexed by such a report, he decided to drive to the location and talk to the guard, perhaps thinking the man had lost his marbles. When he arrived, a wide-eyed guard met him and repeated his story. The lieutenant began to scan the desert for the intruder and soon spied him, or it. Through the starlight scope, he could clearly see that this was not a man. It was a very tall, hair-covered, ape-like man walking through the desert. He said the animal appeared to be looking at the desert floor in search of something. The animal was about 500 yards distant, but the scope was very powerful and tripod-mounted, so it could be observed clearly. Both men continued to observe the animal as it wandered around almost aimlessly, he then reported to his superiors of the activity and was told to keep the animal in sight. This was no problem as the animal remained in the area. About five minutes later, a helicopter was heard approaching the area. Then it was seen coming in fast from the east. They continued to observe the animal which continued its activity. 
The helicopter came in over a rock pile, then the animal spooked. It looked at the helicopter, turned, and ran like a deer around a rock pile and out of sight. The helicopter searched the area, but never found the animal. The two men could hardly believe what they had seen. The next day the lieutenant reported to the command post of the previous night's activity. The command told him that these animals had been seen on the base before, and the public knew them as Bigfoot or Sasquatch. The command explained that they were concerned that these animals may be related to the alien craft, and that all such reports must remain top secret. He was told to continue to observe and report, but not to intervene or disturb the animals until the command determined what they were. The lieutenant had heard of Bigfoot before, but not in the desert. He had always thought that this was some sort of fable or hoax. But he knew what he saw, and now knew that they were real. Through the following years, he and his crew observed the Sasquatches on the base several times. By 1975, they had sophisticated equipment, including video surveillance cameras mounted in key areas. He then explained to me that they had videotaped these animals several times, but the tapes were classified and held under top security at all times. By the time he left Edwards, they had learned very little about these creatures, but his feeling was that they were not UFO-related, but biological living beings. The second officer I interviewed was a major before he too retired in 1978. He had served at Edwards Air Force Base from 1970 through 1978, and was in charge of one of the command posts on the north end of the base. He too explained that they were primarily interested in UFOs and aliens. In fact, it was through his words that I first heard the term EBE, which is apparently the military term for aliens or extraterrestrial biological entities. It is only in recent years that this term has been coined in UFO books relating to the military UFO cover-up. In any case, the Major confirmed what the Lieutenant had told me, but added that these creatures also found their way into the secret underground tunnels that run under Edwards. Although the use and existence of these tunnels was classified, he told me about them knowing that their importance was a moot subject to me. He said that they had surveillance cameras in the tunnels and had, in fact, videotaped the Sasquatches as they wandered through them. He said that they were not concerned with the Sasquatches on the base because they had learned that they were not related to EBE activity and that they were certain that they were simply undiscovered animals. When I asked why they had not captured or killed one in order to prove the existence to the world, he returned that they could not reveal anything that happened on the base. He said that if they were to admit that these creatures often wandered around on the base, the public would lose confidence in their ability to keep the base secure. This, in turn, would give people the idea that they could do the same. Since there was so much secret work continuing on the base, it was not in their interest to discuss the Sasquatches with the public. They wanted to keep people out, not encourage them to 
visit in search of Sasquatches. They already had enough problems with UFO seekers or those wanting to get a peek at the secret aircraft. The third man was a security grunt. That is, what he termed himself. He claimed to have seen these desert Sasquatches through starlight scopes on scorers of occasions. This man was only about 19 years old, but extremely military in his self-presence. He called me, Sir, until I asked him not to. He told me that he had seen a couple of Sasquatches that stood over 10 feet high, had seen obvious females, one with a young one walking with her, and once saw a group of five Sasquatches walking together, all over six feet tall, with the tallest about eight feet tall. They were fully hair-covered, except the palms of their hands, and the base of their feet, and their face. He said their face resembled an ape with very small eyes, a flat nose, and ape-like lips. The arms were long and slung down to their knees. He said their feet were like ours, without an arch, as they had tracked them through the desert several times. When I asked him about the surveillance videos, he told me that he knew of them, but was not involved in that. He said only officers were allowed to videotape the creatures or UFOs. Cameras were not allowed on the base in the hands of the grunts. He said that he felt very privileged to have seen these animals with such clarity because he knew there were several like himself that would do anything to see one. However, he suggested that these animals were not as rare as people assumed, but they are very shy and almost strictly nocturnal. They could be photographed, given the right opportunity, but those opportunities were rare because these creatures are very good at remaining concealed, even in the desert. He told me that the reason they were on the base was that they knew that they would not be harmed. He thought that somehow they could feel danger, or even pick up on human thoughts. Since the officers and grunts on Edwards were ordered not to harm or intervene with the creatures, they could feel this vibe and felt protected. Some of these animals, of course, wander around outside of the base, but these animals are always watching their backs, he explained. To conclude this report, I should advise that several sources have told me in recent years that the desert Sasquatches are still being watched at Edwards Air Force Base. In fact, one officer recently told me that the base security actually appreciates the presence of the Sasquatch there since they give the officers some needed entertainment. Then a question came to mind. Could the EBEs be just as interested in the Sasquatches as they are of other base activities? The officer stopped for a moment, thinking, then said simply, Perhaps. Written by Douglas E. Trapp, Dallas, Texas. This ends the second reading. This brings us to the last of the three stories. Mysterious Shaver Lake, Fresno County, California. Many sightings, four in summer 2012. Additional sightings occurred in September and other updates. Sierra Range, June 2012. 
around 9 o'clock p.m. Not quite sure how to type this. 9 o'clock p.m., stone sober. While driving, I saw up to my right, illuminated only for a couple seconds, as I was towing downhill in a corner turn doing 15 miles per hour, what I believe to fit all descriptions of a Bigfoot. But as I turned the corner, I lost sight. What I saw with the time that I had was half a stride, pause, look and turn, and beginning to stride away. If it wasn't a Bigfoot, then it was a slim bear striding around on his rear legs with all the dimensions of Bigfoot, or maybe a seven-foot-tall, 400-pound ex-football player playing with scaring people, and he got me for a minute or two. In my mind, a lot taller than a man, and his bulk was proportional to Bigfoot. No way for it to be anything else. I know my shapes. The area was hilly, located at the end of Highway 168. Four-lane highway, next down to two lanes. Small plateau type. Small meadow. Above roadway elevation is 3,000 or so. I notified no rangers. June 24, 2012. The aforementioned report prompted this response. A woman reported that her daughter's boyfriend had a sighting in the region of Shaver Lake. In part, she reported, he saw the Bigfoot in his headlights, crouched down next to the road. As he hit his brakes and came to almost a full stop, the Bigfoot stood up straight, strolled off, then ran up the hill and into the trees. He had an unobstructed view for about five to ten seconds. He is a mountain resident that has hunted bear and swore unequivocally that it was not a bear or a man in a suit. It was huge, with a huge chest and did not move like a man, and that its strides were very long. I believe that he is telling the truth. He is just not a BS kind of guy that would make this up. His mom reported that he called her almost hysterical over what he saw. Saturday, June 30th, 2012. Carla and Manuel M. filed a report that was not a physical sighting. While honeymooning at a rental cabin on Shaver Lake, California, they heard vocalizations being emitted from one side of the lake to the other. Manny M. wrote that the sounds were whoops like whoop, 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 in a series of three sets that started on one side of the lake and then returned whoop, whoop, whoop from the other side of the lake. This went on for several hours after midnight, three nights in a row. On their last night there, Carla woke Manny up and ushered him out onto their bedroom porch that was overlooking the lake. The two of them heard a baby crying that lasted three or four minutes. The sound was that of an infant, and it was a frantic cry, and very loud, echoing across the lake. It also emanated from deep within the forest area on the opposite side of Shaver Lake. As they returned to their bedroom, the whoops started up again. Carla said it was very creepy, and that it prevented them from exploring the rocky terrain and much of the lakefront while they honeymooned there.
Wednesday, July 11, 2012. Two forestry workers for Southern California Edison, the company that owns Shaver Lake, stopped to eat their lunch on the banks of Shaver Lake. As they were getting up to head back to their utility truck, parked on the frontageway of Highway 168, they both stopped cold as a reddish-colored Bigfoot walked out of the trees and into the lake. One of the witnesses who filed the report said his visual was too quick to accurately judge its height other than to say it was a pretty big fella with a heavy coat of tangled light looking hair all over. He said it surfaced and swam toward the eastern side in what looked like a very strong dog paddle kind of stroke. He was really moving. The two men stood there dumbfounded as the Bigfoot swam out of sight. Additional sighting, 2009. The SCE informant in the above report said that when he mentioned the sighting to his daughter's music teacher, she related another story told to her that took place also at Shaver Lake in 2009. In any case, it was a second-hand report that told of three campers who were driven out of their tents in the middle of the night by a screaming Mimi that unstaked their tents and attempted to drag them off, tent and all, into the night somewhere. They fled for their lives and did report it to forestry the next day. It was also reported on the Internet. Not sure where. The informant was asked if he knew what the forestry official did, and he said apparently nothing, and indicated they were either mistaken or it was a bear. The music teacher had said, though, we know black bears do not behave that way, and we have no grizzlies in California. It leaves one to wonder what there is left in the forest that would rip up the tent stakes and heave tents with people inside around the campsite. Bears just don't behave that way. Of interest in that story was that the campers kept a high campfire going at night and that the fire did not deter the attack by the Sasquatches. The music teacher said there were two of them, maybe even a third, but nobody stuck around to find out. This isn't the first recording of a campsite attack. The other was in Colorado in the San Juan Mountains. But around Shaver Lake and nearby communities, everyone has a story to tell about Bigfoot. Shaver Lake History Surrounding Areas The cast of Finding Bigfoot television series was in Shaver Lake in March of 2012, interviewing witnesses in a town hall meeting event. At that meeting, Ken Gentry said his group had a huge rock hurled at them from 300 feet away, on the top of a ridge, and saw it as it was launched. They were hiking near Three Rivers, not far from Shaver Lake area. It was a very large rock. One of the athletic guys on our crew, Billy, picked it up and tried to throw it, but he couldn't throw it even 25 feet. If I hadn't seen it with my own eyes, I would have had a hard time believing it actually happened, Gentry said. October 2012. Three middle-aged men go missing near Shaver Lake region. A backpacker. His car was found near Shaver Lake and a second hiker went missing in the general area of the Sierra National Park, 
where there were three or more separate Bigfoot sightings summer of 2012. Two hikers were found, but Larry Kahn, 53, is still missing, 11-6-12. Another sighting contains a lengthy bunch of extraneous information about the surroundings and little about three large cinnamon-brown humanoid figures that moved through a stand of spruce trees. The nearest town? Shaver Lake. Shaver Lake Small Town Magazine filed this article, written by Jolene Polyak, in the summer, fall, of 2012. Jolene attended the Shaver Lake Town Hall meeting. Southeast of Shaver Lake is great deer hunting, according to Bruce Dakova, 51, and his hunting partner, Samuel Broderick, 46, from out of state. It is an area south of Huntington Lake, just short of Dinky Creek, off to the eastern rim of Shaver Lake. In late 2009, the two men went looking for a prime place to set up for the hunting season. In the process, Broderick was taking an armload of firewood to the nearby fire pit when he noticed not one, but two dark figures in the trees. He continued toward the fire ring, dumped the firewood, and put his hand on Dakova's shoulder, whispering to him not to be obvious, but to look in that direction when he could. He whispered that they were being watched by what he thought might be a couple of Bigfoot. Dakova, a veteran trophy hunter, had heard such stories, but thought Bigfoot was imagined. He went about setting up their tent, and then cleaned off his Ray-Ban sunglasses so he could look around without his eyes giving him away. Sure enough, there were two very tall individuals watching them, not thirty-five feet from where he was staking the tent. The pounding of the stakes echoed in the trees, but there were no other sounds to be heard. The Bigfoot made no noise. Dakova turned at that point and told Broderick that he also could see them and was amazed. To break the tension, Dakova yelled over to Broderick, Do they understand English? Broderick broke into a nervous laughter like, <laughs> and began nervously singing the state fight song. Dakova joined in as they edged toward the rifles laying on the ground. For his part, Broderick was admittedly nervous, and hurriedly reached down to unzip the cover off his rifle and loaded it just in case the two creatures came into camp. Apparently, when Broderick raised up the rifle to load it, both Sasquatch departed. The two hunters told me they did not see the creatures again or notice anything unusual during the night. There were no screams and no rock-throwing, and none of the usual nighttime Bigfoot antics reported by other hunters. The description of the two Bigfoot was minimal. They were in the eight-foot range, according to the height of the trees where they stood, and dark in color. Otherwise, no additional details were given. Rob Janus The behavior of the Shaver Lake Dinky Creek watchers was decidedly different from most reports from hunters, in that the two Sasquatch apparently knew what the rifle meant, even though the two hunters did not acknowledge their presence. There are reports of vocalizations in that region, and a number of recent sightings of varying color description, making Janice conclude that 
there might be a diverse population in that region. Janus also noted in his report that neither Broderick nor Dakova bagged a deer that trip. In fact, Broderick said he never spotted one, and even that was unusual. Update, December 29, 2012. Mosmanko 253 wrote December 28, 2012, that he and his girlfriend were riding around looking at property in the Shaver Lake area when they decided to pull over and break out sandwiches at the dead end of Dorabella Road. He looked up as the woman with him cried out, Look! Look! and saw a very strange sight. Heading back into the far side of the trees was a man in a furry costume. He didn't report it because he thought it was a joke until he read this page and decided to report it as a possible Bigfoot sighting that occurred on September 15, 2012. In hindsight, the witness said what he thought was a man in a costume was much too tall to be a joke. This was about 12.30 on Saturday afternoon. We were parked, eating chicken sandwiches and sharing a Diet Pepsi when this happened. My lady friend didn't think it was a costume, but some kind of creature, because the furry part was reddish and long fur down its back and not like a hooded costume. If this was a Bigfoot the couple saw... It brings the sighting total around Shaver Lake to five in 2012. Update. Shaver Lake missing hiker Larry Kahn, a Los Angeles-based attorney who worked at Postinelli Shugart, has not been found as of this date, March 31st, 2013. The search for the resident of Pacific Palisades was suspended in November 2012. After no trace of the man was found, other than his car. Update. Hiker Matthew Hansen has been found, but no details. A report came in January 2013, but the sighting took place back in 1998. A cabin owner near Shaver Lake, California, reported hearing a pack of coyotes yipping and chirping away at something. Walking over to his window, he saw a Bigfoot carrying some kind of large feathered bird in its hand, walking up the road towards his place on Sweetgrass Road. The coyotes were jumping up, trying to bite whatever it was the creature was carrying. He called to his wife and son, and they also saw it as it walked off through the trees, down a dirt trail, which was later paved. R.C. 1998 This concludes the reading of the three stories. Thank you for listening. Welcome. This story is being brought to you by William Jevening and is being narrated by Jim Sower. This is the Ruby Creek story. Stories about the Sasquatch have been appearing in print from time to time since the 1860s, and I have clippings in my files from almost every year since the early 1920s. But the modern history of the Sasquatch really dates from September 1941 when one of these creatures paid a visit, in broad daylight, to an Indian family named Chapman. While the Amerindian stories have usually been dismissed as legend, or laughed off because uh, they're not supposed to be reliable, this experience was accompanied by too much physical evidence to be ignored. 
The Chapman family consisted of George and Jeannie Chapman, and children numbering, at my visit, four. Mr. Chapman worked on the railroad, and was living at that time in a small place called Ruby Creek, thirty miles up the Fraser River from Agassiz, British Columbia, in Canada's great western province. It was about three in the afternoon of a sunny, cloudless day when Jeannie Chapman's eldest son, then age nine, came running to the house saying that there was a cow coming down out of the woods at the foot of the nearby mountain. The other kids, a boy age seven and a little girl of five, were still playing in a field behind the house bordering on the rail track. Miss Chapman went out to look. Since the boy seemed oddly disturbed, and they saw what at first she thought was a very big bear moving about among the bushes bordering on the field beyond the railway tracks, she called the two children, who came running immediately. Then the creature moved on to the tracks, and she saw, to her horror, that it was a gigantic man covered with hair, not fur. The hair seemed to be about four inches long all over, and of a pale yellow-brown color. To pin down this color, Mrs. Chapman pointed out to me a sheet of lightly varnished plywood in the room where we were sitting. This was of a brown okra color. This creature advanced directly towards the house, and Mrs. Chapman had, as she put it, much too much time to look at it, because she stood her ground outside while the eldest boy, on her instructions, got a blanket from the house and rounded up the other children. The kids were in a near panic, she told us, and it took two or three minutes to get the blanket, during which time the creature had reached the near corner of the field only about one hundred feet away from her. Mrs. Chapman then spread the blanket and, holding it aloft so the kids could not see the creature, or it them, she backed off at the double to the old field and down onto the river beach out of sight, and then ran with the kids downstream to the village. I asked her a leading question about the blanket. Had her purpose in using it been to prevent her kids seeing the creature, in accordance with an alleged Amerindian belief that to do so brings bad luck and often death? Her reply was both prompt and surprising. She said that, although she had heard white men tell of that belief, she had not heard it from her parents or any other of her people whose advice regarding the so-called Sasquatch had been simply not to go further than certain points up certain valleys, to run if she saw one, and not to struggle if one caught her as it might squeeze her to death by mistake. No, she said. I used the blanket because I thought it was after one of the kids, and so might go into the house to look for them instead of following me. This seems to have been sound logic, as the creature did go into the house, and also rummaged through an old outhouse pretty thoroughly, hauling from it a fifty-five-gallon barrel of salt fish, breaking this open and scattering its contents about outside. The irony of it is that all three children did die within three years, the two boys by drowning and the little girl on a sick bed. And just after I interviewed the Chapmans, they also were drowned in the Fraser River when a rowboat capsized.
Mrs. Chapman told me that the creature was about seven and a half feet tall. She could estimate its height by the various fence and line posts standing about the field. It had a rather small head and a very short, thick neck. In fact, really, no neck at all, a point that was emphasized by William Rowe and by all others who claimed to have seen one of these creatures. Its body was entirely human in shape, except that it was immensely thick through its chest, and its arms were exceptionally long. She did not see the feet, which were in the grass. Its shoulders were very wide, and it had no breasts, from which Mrs. Chapman assumed it was a male, though she did not see any male genitalia due to the long hair covering its groin. She was most definite on one point. The naked parts of its face and its hands were much darker than its hair, and appeared to be almost black. George Chapman returned home from his work on the railroad that day shortly before six in the evening, and by a route that bypassed the village, so that he saw no one to tell him what had happened. When he reached his house, he immediately saw the woodshed door battered in, and spotted enormous humanoid footprints all over the place. Greatly alarmed, for he, like all of his people, had heard since childhood about the big wild men of the mountains, though he did not hear the word Sasquatch till after this incident. He called for his family, and then dashed through the house. Then he spotted the foot tracks of his wife and kids going off toward the river. He followed these until he picked them up on the sand beside the river and saw them going off downstream without any giant ones following. Somewhat relieved, he was retracing his steps when he stumbled across the giant's foot tracks on the river bank farther upstream. These had come down out of the potato patch, which lay between the house and the river, had milled about by the river, and then gone back through the old field toward the foot of the mountains, where they disappeared in the heavy growth. Returning to the house, relieved to know that the tracks of all four of his children and family had gone off downstream to the village, George Chapman went to examine the woodshed. In our interview after eighteen years, he still expressed voluble astonishment that any living thing, even a seven-foot-six-inch man with the barrel chest, could lift a fifty-five-gallon tub of fish and break it open without using a tool. He confirmed the creature's height after finding a number of long brown hairs stuck in the slabwood lintel of the doorway above the level of his head. George Chapman then went off to the village to look for his family, and found them in a state of calm collapse. He gathered them up and invited his father-in-law and two others to return with him for protection of his family when he was away at work. The foot tracks returned every night for a week, and on two occasions the dogs that the Chapmans had taken with them set up the most awful racket at exactly two o'clock in the morning. The Sasquatch did not, however, molest them or apparently touch either the house or the woodshed. But the whole business was too unnerving, and the family finally moved out. They never went back. After a long chat about this and other matters, Mrs. Chapman suddenly told us something very significant just as we were leaving. She said, It made an awful funny noise. 
I asked her if she could imitate this noise for me, but it was her husband who did so, saying that he had heard it at night twice during the week after the first incident. He then proceeded to utter exactly the same strange, gurgling whistle that the men in California, who said they had heard a Bigfoot call, had given us. This is a sound I cannot reproduce in print, but I can assure you that it is unlike anything I have ever heard given by man or beast anywhere in the world. To me this information is of greatest significance. That an Amerindian couple in British Columbia should give out with exactly the same strange sound in connection with a Sasquatch that two highly educated white men did over 600 miles south in connection with California's Bigfoot is incredible. If this is all hoax, or a publicity stunt, or a mass hallucination, as some people have claimed, how does it happen that this noise, which defies description, always sounds the same no matter who has tried to reproduce it for me? These were probably the last words on the Sasquatch that the Chapmans uttered, and I absolutely refuse to listen to anybody who might say that they were lying. Admittedly, Honest men are such a rarity as possibly to be non-existent. But I have met a few who could qualify, and I put the Chapmans near the head of that list. This story was written by Ivan T. Sanderson in True Magazine, March 1960. This concludes the reading of Ruby Creek. Thank you for listening. Story from Orleans, California, 1952. This person's encounter was so shocking that he blocked it from consciousness for a time. He did recall the events, however, and this is what he related. I began to remember more and more of what happened. I had me a bad case of the jitters as the memory uncoiled. The first part of the story took me back to 1952, when I had gone to Orleans to start preliminary work on a logging operation with two men by the names of Lee Valeri and Josh Russell. One evening... Josh told me Lee had gone up to Happy Camp, but not having transportation back wanted me to take the Mercury and go up and get him. I had driven the extremely crooked and dangerous road up there, but not being able to find him started back alone to Orleans. It had been raining very heavily, and after going back a few miles I found there had been a slide across the road. There was a man with a flashlight there who told me I could still go back to Orleans by way of a detour across the river. He said it was a dirt road that went through Bear Valley and could come out at the mouth of Bluff Creek a few miles below Orleans. I had been driving slowly down this road for about 20 miles, I guess, sort of daydreaming, when I saw it. Dimly in the headlights, and the rain, was a shaggy, orangutan-like apparition of a human. For an instant, I had the impression the shaggy hair of the creature was a hoary blue-gray in the headlights. An ogre, I remember thinking. But the thing swiftly backpedaled off the road and behind a tree. I automatically passed it off as imagination and drove on by the spot. Suddenly, without warning, the car went into a violent and unreasonable skid. I brought the car back under control, but for some reason glanced into the rearview mirror. In the dim light of the taillights and license display bulb, I thought I could see a savage-looking face looking through the rear glass. I continued on, and when I looked again, there was no face. So again concluded it was imagination. 
I had gone another quarter mile, I guess, when across the road was a small six-inch sapling. I stopped the car and got out, intending to drag it aside if possible. Suddenly I heard the swift thud of flying feet of something coming down the road. Reality was upon me, and I remember cursing myself for not paying attention to what I had previously seen. It was the shaggy human-like monster I had seen in the headlights. It at once started circling around me, snarling and acting very menacing. It kept this circling up for some time and once came up quite close, and I could see its face reflected by the headlights much better. The eyes were round and rather luminous. The hair on top of its rather low and rounded head was pretty short. Its eye teeth were far longer than a human's. Also, the chest and upper part of its torso was rather bare of hair and also leathery looking. It wasn't too tall, not much more than my own five feet nine inches, although it had a stooped, long-armed posture. Then suddenly it changed tactics. It would stalk off down the road, but would come charging back like a bat out of hell when I started toward the car. The hour was late. The thing was becoming more and more menacing, and I was almost paralyzed by this time, paralyzed by fear. Suddenly a plan of escape, born out of desperation, popped into my mind. Since the monster seemed to think I couldn't get away, why not, when it went down the road again, playing cat and mouse, try to get in the car and smash through the sapling? This I did and sprang for the door of the car a dozen feet away. No sooner was I inside when there it was, trying to claw through the window. I jerked the car into gear, floored the accelerator, and can vividly remember the wet sapling glistening whitely in the headlights as the car slashed it aside. I remember the scream of rage and frustration it then gave. It was a curious, trumpeting sound, like the scream of a stallion and the roar of a mad grizzly. The car then felt as though it were being held back by something half-riding and attempting to stop it. But the powerful mercury proved too much for it, and after a couple hundred yards I felt no more resistance. To top this unbelievable experience off, believe it or not, I promptly forgot the whole experience. Then and there it went out of my mind. Not even the next day, when Lee asked me if I had seen anything unusual on that road last night, did I remember. He had come later from Happy Camp with another man hired to take him to Orleans. A few days later, an incident happened that should have brought the experience back, but didn't. Lee noticed a big dent in the grill of the car, and asked me how it got there. I told him I didn't know. Incidentally, Lee told me that something had tried to push them off the road when they came through on the detour. He said there's something strange going on around here, and let the matter drop. Thanks for listening to this episode of Creek Devil. If you or anyone you know has had an encounter with these creatures, please contact us at williamjevning at yahoo.com. That's william, J-E-V-N-I-N-G, at yahoo.com. All communication is confidential. Join us for another program next week. And until then, keep your eyes open out there.